Welcome to Prussian Socialism. This episode, we're going to get back to our roots and talk about Prussia. So I'm here with my colleague Warren Baylog, and our topic is the German Befreiungskrieg of 1813 and all the events of uh, that led up to it from the battles of Jena and Auerstadt uh, to the development of the Prussian uh, military and the, the government reforms that took place and then the triumphant return of uh, the Prussian state to uh, throw Napoleon and the French occupation out. And I think uh, one of the themes of this podcast, or our our, uh, our main theme, is the idea of how nations are formed and that they're always formed in the crucible of war and revolution. So I'm going to let Warren summarize the events of uh, the basic outline of, of these uh, events, but I just wanted to read you a paragraph from this book. It's a book called Napoleon's Conquest of Prussia, 1806, by a Englishman by the name of F. Lorraine Petrie. Uh, Petrie was a guy who was kind of doing what we're doing. He was 100 years after the Napoleonic Wars, looking back on them and realizing how important the the sort of the campaigns out in Prussia and, and Russia were to the events of his own date, and he's writing right before World War One. So he, he has a, a very good, uh, there's a lack of bias in his writing. But he says, or his, uh, this isn't actually him talking, this is his, the introduction to him, but I think this summarizes the magnitude of the events very well. One cannot read the story of the Yena campaign without realizing from the tragedy of Prussia in 1806, a tragedy without parallel in modern times. The fate, amazing in its swiftness and appalling in its severity, which may at any moment overtake a state which exists in fancied security based on traditions of a heroic past and wrapped in a selfish indifference, hoping, ostrich-like, to escape the danger it refuses to see. Wow. So, yeah, yeah Warren, could you set, give us the picture here? Set, us, set the stage and... and uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I'll, I'll try to connect this to people who would be listeners to this show, people who are... Uh, in our in our uh, circles in our movement, follow white you know twenty first century white nationalist politics are interested in national socialism. So why is this interesting? Why is this relevant? Uh, what happened to Prussia in eighteen oh six oh seven and then later in eighteen thirteen? Well, the biggest reason is if you're interested in Hitler and the SS and the Third Reich, which a lot of a lot of young people are, uh, this was one of the big things that interested him and his generation and the young men that were that grew up under that period during the third reich this was their uh <laughs> I, I use the example that um instead of like marvel comics movies they the third reich they were making movies about these wars in the 18th century and one of the big uh films that was the third reich made about this period was uh kohlberg which people may have heard of it. It was the Third Reich's most expensive film. It was a war epic. It was released at the end of uh, the war, actually. It, it didn't come out until like March of 1945. So it, it was released too late to have any kind of an effect on civilian morale. I had heard about this film, that it was the Third Reich's big, you know, Gone with the Wind or whatever. And I, 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 I downloaded it many years ago when I was in college. And I watched it and I was like, 
the hell did I just watch? You know, like I didn't understand anything about the politics of it, or it's just a bunch you know, of guys marching around in wigs and yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like again, we we all this generation, our generation, and and Zoomers, you know, we. We like the Waffen SS. We've played a lot of World War II games. We've we've we know World War II movies. So this seems kind of like old timey. It seems quaint. It seems confusing. The politics of it seem confusing because there isn't Germany. There isn't like the Germans in Germany. There's Prussia, which people don't even know. I mean, listeners of this podcast know what Prussia is, but most people don't even know what the hell Prussia is or was. And people who are trying to see things through the lens of like France, England, Germany, nation states get very confused. I think when they see like Austria versus Prussia, you know, the war of Austrian succession, all these 18th like century Saxony, wars. Hanover. Yeah. All these states, Saxony and Hanover. And it, and it's just stuff that it, it, it seems um, complicated. It seems difficult to understand. It also seems sort of not really that interesting. It's like, okay, so Austrians versus Prussians. I mean, we talk about brother. People aren't even interested in the brother wars of like the French versus the Germans. People don't like care to study that because it's like, I'd rather study the Zulu war where like it's Englishmen, white, white men shooting at Zulu warriors in South Africa or something like that. So yeah, that was my first understanding of it. But uh, there are a number of things, there's many, many indications that this is something that is worth studying and is worth educating yourself on. And it's one of these things I want to say to your listeners, Greg, that all of this stuff is like a rabbit hole that once you start going down it, it just gets more and more and more interesting. And I'll give some examples of that a little later on. Basically, what happened between 1806-07 to the winter of 1806-07 to 1813 is a massive redemption arc for the state of Prussia. What happened was Prussia went to war with Napoleon, France, and was knocked out cold in the first round. Like the first punch that was thrown was knocked out cold. Prussia, and we'll get into the details, but Prussia was known at that time as being like the Sparta of Europe, the most militant state, the best soldiers, the best reputation, the best cavalry. Uh, they were known as like sort of the badasses of Europe, and this was based on the reputation that they had earned 50 years earlier in the wars of Fred Frederick the Great, and the reputation that because Frederick the Great was the military giant of the of the 18th century. I mean, he was the one that emerged as the great genius of the of the 1700s. So we fast forward to the early 1800s, and this state that has this reputation as being the most hardcore badass soldier state of all states in Europe finally goes to war with Napoleon and Napoleon flattens them in the twin battles of Jena Auerstadt and that's why those battles are famous because it was just like an ultimate blitzkrieg and we'll get into the details of it so what happened was long story short Prussia was occupied by the French Prussia was humiliated by the French uh they had their land stripped away. They were forced to deal with, put up with all kinds of restrictions. Napoleon worked out bargains with his other allies, frenemies like uh, Alexander of Russia, the Tsar of Russia. There's a famous scene portrayed in War and Peace by Tolstoy where uh, Napoleon met the Tsar of Russia, Alexander, on the river, on a raft in the river at Tilsit 
to to work out their new order to sort of divide Europe between them, the the French and the Russians. And the King of Prussia was like left standing on the shore with his hat in hand, like hoping that when they when they're done, that they will inform him that he's allowed to still keep a country. Uh, yeah, Prussia was completely humiliated. And what happened was six, seven years later, you know, Napoleon reached ever greater heights. There was another war against Austria. Finally, it all climaxed with his invasion of Russia. And when Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812 with the largest army that had ever been assembled in human history up to that time, it was about 600,000 men. Uh, he wasn't defeated. He won several battles, Smolensk and Borodino, which was the bloodiest battle of the Napoleonic War. But um, the Russians refused to give up. They burned Moscow. Uh, Napoleon was running out of time, running out of food. Uh, his army was dwindling. And uh, in December of 1812, well, it was a little before that, but he decided that uh, they couldn't hold out in Russia and they couldn't wait for Alexander to make peace. He wasn't going to make peace and they had to hightail it back to Europe, to, to Central Europe. And in that retreat, um, the, the snows came early. The Cossacks were pursuing them. They had run out of food. They had run out of uh, winter clothing. And Napoleon's Grand Army, which was the mightiest army in Europe, was just destroyed. Uh, out of 600,000 men, about 20,000 made it back alive. It's one of the greatest defeats in all of military history. And uh, so what happened was in 1813, that was in 1812. In 1813, the Prussians rose up against Napoleon. Almost against the will of their king. Yes, against the will of their king, yeah. And it was led by a group of, of the people called the Prussian reformers who later uh, formed what would become the, the basis of the famous uh, Prussian and, and German general staff. Um, these were people that were, uh, like Clausewitz was a, was a uh, staff, uh, what, what, what was he? I forget what his role was, but he was a- Well, he was like an aide-de-camp to- uh, one of the princes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and and, and, and then later they they built out the staff organization after that. Yeah. And and there were these famous figures that that today people don't know about, but back then, like during the, during the time of Hitler, if you went to Hitler's Germany, these people would be like as well known today as 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 um, Wolverine is from the X Men. You know what I mean? Like every kid in America knows who Wolverine is or knows who Batman is. So in the Third Reich, it would be like Kneisenau, Scharnhorst, Baumstein, yeah. York, uh, uh, York, uh, Blücher, you know, and, and all these guys. Blücher was the famous Prussian general who uh, marshal forward, marshal forwards, they yeah. called him because like no matter what was happening, he would attack, <laughs> like, go forward and attack no matter what the battle calls for. Uh he was the Prussian counterpart to Wellington. Most people have heard of Wellington at Waterloo in 1815 when Napoleon was finally defeated for the last time. Um, Blücher was like the other big commander at Waterloo. So it was Wellington and Blücher. And in the Anglo-speaking country, in the English-speaking countries, the Anglo world, we all know about Wellington. Like Nap Wellington was Napoleon's big nemesis. He kind yeah. of wasn't. I mean, he sort of was, but... England didn't have a lot of major land battles with the French army. Like they, they at the end, at the very end, they threw their weight in at Waterloo and and fought very well. But Prussia fought a lot harder and did a lot more. And uh, 1813 was when the Prussians rose up, as I said, and they drove the French out. And this is what's called the Wars of Liberation, which Hitler references repeatedly in Mein Kampf. And this is one of those things that 
is foundational to not only Hitler and National Socialism, but it's foundational to German nationalism. So the roots of German nationalism are to be found in a large part in this war of liberation that Prussia fought against Napoleon. And uh, so, yeah, that's why it's important. It's endlessly interesting once you dig into it, but you have to sort of get the big picture. I recommend to people a great starting point is, and you and I were just watching Epic History TV on YouTube. They have a couple of short videos on this where they trace the battles of Jena and Auerstadt and the other battles of the Napoleonic Wars. That's a great place to start. But yeah, so with that overview, it's basically a redemption arc. Prussia is knocked out cold, flattened by a Napoleonic blitzkrieg in 0607, and then rises Phoenix-like from the ashes, thanks to these reforms and thanks to the reorganization of Prussia, which later was a big influence on National Socialism. And that's what the movie Kohlberg is about. It's about the spirit of the people rising up in a, like a, a German nationalism, like a new sense of national identity. So when we talk about how this the uh, how it came to blows between Prussia and Napoleon in 1806, because like you said, Prussia was known uh, as the great military state in Europe since Frederick the Great, and they'd sort of rested on their laurels up to that point, and yes. uh, they'd not really I guess they hadn't had any major wars in a while and they'd participated a little bit in the like the first coalition war with uh with France but Prussia had been sort of on the periphery and then they they spent the first few years of Napoleon's reign of terror uh, across Europe sitting on the sidelines and trying to play neutral which is like the it would be a direct uh violation of Machiavelli's principle of don't be the neutral uh right. they almost got the worst of everything if they just thrown in their lot with uh austria or russia or, or france even like just pick a team they might have uh you know had a better outcome but so before before jena and Auerstadt happened napoleon thrashed the austrians at his biggest battle was austerlitz or one of his yeah. biggest victory up well, to that point. Well, it's his, it, it, Austerlitz, they say, is Napoleon's, like, most perfect victory. It it's was just, like, I. a flawlessly e executed thing where he just led them into this gigantic trap and closed the trap and just, like, destroyed them. I mean, Jena and Auerstadt are actually more... Like, much, much like, sloppier and... Well, Jena and Auerstadt were more uh, decisive, like, victories from the standpoint of napoleonic warfare like napoleon never knocked a state out as quickly or as badly as he did prussia uh so you could say that jena and auerstadt are examples of napoleon's deadliness as a as a force he, he managed to do it in like two and a half weeks i mean yes. the, the time from crossing the border into prussia or into saxony i guess it was uh but prussian uh, you know territory to the battle was like a week and then there's yeah. about a week and a half of pursuit and then they gave up. Yeah. And and to give the broader background on on like a lot of people don't know about the Napoleonic Wars, like what was at the root of it. And I I can really quickly summarize that. The root of it is basically that the French Revolution happened and the French <laughs> cut off the head of their king and established a republic on like radical uh enlightenment egalitarian ideals which 
Uh, you know, some some people in our thing are like, oh yeah, it all started with the French Revolution, and I I, I think Hitler uh, Hitler took a very nuanced view of the French Revolution. There was there was a lo- there was some good and some bad in in what was happening there. There was much with the I mean certainly the old monarchies of Europe uh, <clears throat> were not all great, um, and there was a lot that could have been better. And uh, there was some that was good that happened with the French Revolution. There was a lot that was bad that happened. But whether it's good or bad, uh, the French Revolution happened. It was major. I mean, France is like one of the big, big major powers of Europe. France is an ancient nation and, uh, you know, founded really by like Charlemagne, you could say. I mean, it goes all the way back. Uh, the French kings and the and the and the military history of France. I mean, we were talking in the one episode about the First Crusade. I mean, like all the first crusaders that were the like the greatest ones. Most of them were uh, <clears throat> French. So, for France's government to fall, for the king, the monarchy to fall to this republican force was just so big that essentially what happened is all the other monarchies of Europe declared war on France and tried to to knock out this this government and put the bourbons back in power because it was sort of like if this can happen there it can happen to any of us and we are all you know all the monarchs of Europe were kind of interrelated back then so it really is pretty much that simple that they were just like whoa we cannot let this new form of government start to spread we got to knock this out and napoleon was just some guy like you said about uh what's his name uh he was just napoleon was just some guy he was he was not uh of a i mean he had some minor nobility corsican nobility but uh he found himself through uh, you know necessity is the mother of invention he found himself as the overall commander in a very early battle with the english uh that he won and then rapidly because they were desperate for generals just rapidly got promoted and uh, one campaign after another, I mean, Napoleon was a was a total military genius. I mean, like, really, people still say he was the greatest military genius of all time. Certainly his record of battles that he won is greater by far than any general in history. I mean, um, there, there's a book I have that says that he, Napoleon fought more battles than Alexander, Caesar, and Hannibal combined, I think. Um, so total military genius, very smart guy. Uh, and he ends up winning battle after battle against these various powers of Europe. And, and, you know, what happens is when you're being attacked is you have to take the battle to the enemy. So, you know, Napoleon has a reputation today for like trying to conquer all of Europe, kind of like Hitler in that respect. I mean, Napoleon really was the Hitler of his day. I hate to say it, but he really, really was. I think that's fair. Leon de Grel, I think would agree, um, because he was a big Napoleon respecter, but Napoleon himself would get would bristle at the idea that he was this glory hungry warmonger who was just invading everybody. What he would say is everybody was declaring war on me and I was just faster and better at beating them. You know, so I had to keep like the sphere of uh, the theater of war kept expanding because he kept facing new threats. And England was his big arch enemy who never like was fighting him toe to toe, except with a few examples like Waterloo. But for the most part, England just financed his enemies. And England was just like in the 20th century. England was obsessed with maintaining the balance of power on the continent and didn't want this this one single hegemon emerge under France. Uh, 
So that's what the Napoleon Wars were fought about. And like you said, there were coalitions. There were a series of coalitions, like sixth and seventh coalitions, where, where all the different powers of Europe would form like a coalition to try to beat France. And Napoleon would beat them all. And then a year would go by and they'd form a new coalition and they'd try to beat him again. And then he would beat them again. Yeah, there were always so, ingr- uh, so much ingratitude on the part of the Prussians and the Austrians whenever Napoleon would beat them and give them a, a nice peace and maybe marry one of their sisters or, or you know, he would. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then they would they would get angry about it and like join another coalition and try to stab him in the back. And yeah. Napoleon. He was... he, I mean, he, he should have just like deposed uh, the I mean their leaders and we've been merciless about it maybe i have to say this about napoleonic warfare too and that period i think that it's a great starting point to get little kids interested in history it's funny because there was a one of the late murdoch murdochs one of the last ones they did they had a situation where there was like a little boy in school who was interested in napoleon and his like teacher was trying to discourage that Um, Napoleon is a figure who in the 19th century and even in the early 20th century was revered as like a god of war. That's what, who, who was it? I think Clausewitz or somebody called him a a god of war. Uh, he was considered, and he was right from that period of the, when the, when the enlightenment gave way to the romantic period where it's like the self-made genius the 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 great man i mean like the he was the model for the whole right up until world war ii napoleon was like the model of the great man who just self-made through his own just incredible genius rises to the pinnacle of power uh you know if you are interested in germany and german nationalism you can find so many cool characters like gneisenau and many others to be to admire but i think uh it's a great place to start is which is the story of napoleon like your kid you should know the story of napoleon like you should know the basic outlines of the story of napoleon's rise and fall your kids should know that like little girls and little boys both sides are worthy of emulation and are interesting or all all sides yes it's not it's not a, a comical good verse bad story yes and this is something greg that you and i talked about uh, recently is is it's it's a great example of what we were what we were talking about before of like Achilles versus Hector where the mature white man who studies history doesn't always typically has never always tried to find the who's the good guy and bad guy who's the comic book and it's like if there isn't one then I'm not interested you know if it's like Robert E. Lee versus, uh, you know, one of the, one of, well, the Northern generals were mostly bad guys, but like, <laughs> <laughs> certainly some of them really were like Sherman, but, um, but, but, you know, you could have, uh, Custer's a good example. Okay. Custer was a great general on the Northern side, a great cavalry general fighting for the union in the American civil war. And Nathan Bedford Forrest was a great cavalry general fighting for the Confederacy, or Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart and Custer actually came to blows. You know, you can, the way history used to be taught and the way men would like be educated in history, you could learn about a conflict like this. Like you said, you find things to emulate in both sides. The guy that won, you see why he won. The guy who lost, see why he lost. But then, the you know, you see also what their strengths were. Uh, I think we should we should return to that. I think in, in this movement and more broadly, if we ever uh, have more influence over the educational system, 
we should encourage that sort of taking interest in the great men of history and their deeds and well, their especially because when you look at history that way you uh, and then you apply that to world war ii or the civil american civil war or anything like that you start to think well uh it's hard to then view it through the Jewish lens of this side is good and this side is bad. You start looking at the Germans. You're saying, okay, well, uh, yeah, these are the good things that they're doing. These and they're being unfairly criticized for this. Well, maybe they're being unfairly criticized for other things too. Right. But um, going back to the the outbreak of the war. So sure. at, at first, it didn't I think Napoleon sort of caused it? Didn't he? Because he had uh, one of his marshals was it Bernier or Bernadotte? He had one of the Bernadotte. one of the marshals like. Tra bring his corps through Prussian territory on the way to Austerlitz was the the yeah the, part of it. I mean, there was a whole series of things, uh, and and we don't need to get into the the real nitty gritty of this, but basically, uh, the big players against the, that were at war with Russia in 1805 were uh, England, which was providing the money and the and the you know financing and then doing blockades and things like that and of course uh, the British won the big naval battle of Trafalgar usual tricks with, with with Lord Nelson which again it's eerie how history repeats itself uh, Trafalgar the big famous naval battle where the French uh, navy was knocked out and this basically kept Napoleon from invading England. The same thing happened under Queen Elizabeth Tudor with the Spanish Armada back when Spain was the major power in, right. on the continent in the early 1600s. And then the same thing happened in 1940 with the Battle of Britain where the Luftwaffe was not able to obtain supremacy over the Royal Air Force. And so uh, a, a ground and, you know, a land invasion or a, I'm sorry. I, well, and then I, the, <laughs> there was also the, the British took the Danish fleet in in Napoleonic Wars. Yes. And just yeah, like they yeah, took yeah, yeah. just like they took the French fleet at uh, in, in Algeria. I and, mean, I got to hand it to the British Empire. Like there's a reason why they were so strong. It's just sort of despicable how they did it. They did it by always uh, doing playing this balance of power politics. But anyway, so there was the British. Sorry for the digression there. There was the British, there were the Austrians, which were under the Habsburgs, which Austria wasn't just Austria back then. It was this vast empire, uh, which included Hungary and, and many other powers that, that was part of the same uh, empire that only fell apart after the end of World War I. And then there was Russia, which was very strong under its Tsar Alexander at the time, who was a, a young man and very full of zeal and for all kinds of great projects. And he sort of saw himself as like a, he admired Napoleon and he saw himself as like a Napoleon like figure. He was not nearly as smart or as great as Napoleon, but he thought he was. Um, but he was a sort of captivating ruler and, and he had like a, a zeal for these things that some of the older Kings didn't have. And then uh, Sweden also was allied with them. Uh, so these are the powers that were at war with Napoleon. And yeah, Prussia's standing on the sidelines and Prussia's minister Haugwitz was very much set on a course of neutrality in this war. He was keeping Prussia neutral, which all of the powers fighting Napoleon kind of resented and didn't like that. And then Napoleon didn't like it either because he wanted them to shit or get off the pot. He's like, pick a damn side. I mean, what, what you said earlier about... <laughs> It's like the uh, the expression, you know, you try to sit on two chairs at once, you end up sitting on the floor. Like whoever came up with that knew about Yana and Hauerstadt because it's literally like what what happened there. Uh, 
yeah, there were a series of, of small minor insults and incursions that were mounting up. Napoleon was trying to maneuver Prussia into picking a side. And uh, there were a, lo- a lot of different factors that led to it. But essentially, Prussia charted the worst possible course. Uh, they, they finally resolved to give Napoleon a list, uh, like a, a series of ultimatums, because they were sick of all these different little petty things that France had done, where they're just like sort of riding roughshod over Prussia, and they don't care about Prussia. Like you said, marching through their territory, Bernadotte did, and then this whole issue over Hanover that Napoleon took from the English, and then he offered it to the Prussians, sort of to, as like it's to sweeten the deal to come over to his side. But the but the catch was they would have to go to war with England over it, and they didn't want to go to because war with Hanover England. was the the traditional uh, principality or dukedom of the British crown. Yes, or yes. It, was, it was where the 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 dynasty had come from, the Hanoverian dynasty. Right, and this is Hanover is uh, south of Denmark, so it's like in northern central Germany. And um, he, uh, Napoleon, offers them Hanover, Prussia, but it's like contingent on they have to go join the war against England, and they don't want to do that because they're nominally like they're much friendlier on friendlier terms with England and the coalition against Napoleon than they are with France. Uh, but eventually, <laughs> they accept, piss the English off. The English declare war on Prussia. And then Napoleon, to make peace with England, says, I want Hanover back. I'm going to give it back to the English in order to make peace with them, which really pissed off the Prussians. They were under a weak king at the time named uh, Friedrich Wilhelm III, who uh, is just, uh, sadly, this guy is just universally known as a, like, like Hitler. Just, indecisive. Like, and, yeah. Uh, and I mean, not weak as in like, he wasn't like a bastard. He was just like a real jerk or something. He was just indecisive and wavering and not like the opposite of Napoleon, you know, uh, very ill matched. against. I saw, I saw somewhere that his wife, uh, his wife, who was like famous and popular with the people, uh, Louisa, she wrote to him once saying that you ought to just have some more self-confidence. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, 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 I think like, so Queen Louisa is a fascinating figure. She, uh there's a scene in the movie Kohlberg that I mentioned that the Third Reich produced where they show Queen Louisa, where it's like a German peasant girl uh, from the city of Kohlberg comes and makes an appeal to her. And it's like a, it's an almost eerie scene because she died very young. She died of some illness. She had a big family. Uh, she she was had, just, died in 1810. Yeah, yeah. She was in her 30s, I think, in her mid-30s when she died. But she was known as being, first of all, she was known as like one of the most beautiful women in Europe at the time. And uh, it was just known for this. But she was also like fiercely patriotic and, and sort of like a proto-German nationalist, which many of these people were in the Prussian court at that time. They were, they were, they had nationalistic feelings. As- the, the idea of like a united Germany of the states that weren't part of Austria was coming to the fore at this time. Yes. And this is, this is totally, uh, just not like a thing prior to this period really i mean that the the idea of german nationalism and that we'll we'll come back to that how german nationalism was born in this but queen louisa is so beautiful and they show her in this movie kohlberg and it's interesting the way the third reich portrays her and which is very consistent with the way she's portrayed in in you know german history up to that time which when this german peasant girl comes to see her it's like it's almost eerie like how 
poised and beautiful she is and wise and and they they make her it's it's like she's like an angel it's like it's like you are in the presence of like a like an angel or a, or a saint you know a, 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 a female saint um she was played by a very famous um really beautiful german actress uh but she was known as being part of the quote war party meaning she was very much in favor of like we got to take action against napoleon and against france and uh several of the Prussian, the later the prussian reformers scharnhorst and again people know the name scharnhorst there's a famous battleship that was named after scharnhorst nice yeah. now also so these names are like big names in the third reich because like a regiment will be named after them or a or a, a battleship or something like that uh and then the other one was uh Prince Louis Ferdinand, who I'm going to tell a cool story about later, who was the uh, he was the uh, nephew of Frederick the Great and a good friend of Nepo of uh, Beethoven's and a great composer and a great military man and uh, an example of the kind of I was telling you. Well, earlier, so maybe not a great composer, but a good composer. He was well. I mean, he was not. He's not Beethoven. No. But, well, well, but he had the potential to be. He uh, had the potential, and, and and I think Beethoven thought he had the the potential to be a really great composer. I mean, not really great like Beethoven tier, but like really good. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I think Clausewitz also said about him that had a had he, he you know he was killed very early on in the in the Jena Auerstadt campaign. Uh, and I'll tell that story a little bit in a little bit. But uh, Clausewitz said of him that if he had been allowed to live through a long war, he would have emerged as a great military commander. He, I, I think pe the people saw him as like the next Frederick the Great. And he was killed at the age of 33, at like the, basically the first battle of this war with France. So uh, it was a great... And that was a huge blow to the morale of the Prussians because he was... The, the problem with the Prussian army in 1806, as all these books that we've been looking at, every one of them mentions it, is that they were great under Frederick the Great 50 years ago. And it's now 1806, and they have not modernized their army at all. They are still... Uh, Prussia was known at this time as a, an army with a, with a country attached to it, meaning that there was a total separation between like the military as above and over the rest of the country the rest of the country is like seen as just like okay you know you were subordinate to the military the military is the institution of the country and the military was filled with and led by all the generals of like frederick the great's time so they were all guys i mean this one book goes through and there's a strict and the strict separation too between aristocrats in the officer corps yes and peasants and no burgers like just no, pe yes. peasants in the in the in the infantry or in the in the line and then aristocrats and it was one man in 50 in all of prussia was in the army yes whereas later it would get much higher but only one in 50 you'd think of this militarized state you'd think more than one man yeah. in 50 would be in the army but yes yeah it was and, actually a very small army yeah and uh and they uh and that's part of why they lost to napoleon was just because uh, again what one of the things that the french revolution brought the French Revolution helped to ignite nationalism all over Europe. And you think, well, how could that be? The French Revolution was about liberty, equality, fraternity. There's no nationalism there. Yes, but just like Russia in the Great Patriotic War, in order to make the thing work, uh, they have to fall back on France. <laughs> like, for Fran you know, Napoleon, when, I think his last words when he died, they said it was like he mentioned Josephine, you know, his great love and his first wife. 
but uh, he says like for France, you know, he's not saying for liberty, equality, fraternity. It's like for France, you know. So uh, the 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 Grand Army was made of of this mass. We were talking about this when we were talking about uh, Machiavelli. It was made of this mass conscript army, this huge conscript army that was just so much bigger than all the professional armies like Prussia. So you have this army that is using outdated tactics from Frederick the Great's time where, you know, technology has moved on, rifle technology and and just tactics have evolved. Napoleon is using. It was mostly the command, like command and control was the big difference between the Prussians and the French. Yeah. It was like the the. Uh, the French had instituted the divisional and the corps structure where you would have a, a corps could operate by itself. It had artillery, it had cavalry, it had a baggage train or it had logistical ability to sustain the corps by itself. And then Napoleon would have the corps all converge on the on the battlefield when it's that way they would be eating up the supplies from different areas and only yes. concentrate to fight. But the Prussians hadn't adopted this yet. So they still had their uh, they had their like artillery and cavalry weren't necessary. you didn't have like the, the army had to fight all as one it couldn't be broken down into self-sustaining corps right and they also didn't have the staff work the way the french did the french had started to figure out at the more advanced level all right how do we break down all the tasks of command in such a way that any person that the commander isn't overloaded with decisions and even though you know napoleon was a genius and basically did it all himself um and could keep all of these like complicated figures and functions in his head um he had still had something of a staff function on it. It was, it was Berthier, right? Was his chief of staff. Yeah, there were there were a couple different ones, but Berthier was the big one. Yeah, and um, you know, with guys figuring out the routes, figuring out how the the doing route recon to figure out where to go, figure out how to okay, how how many men can we supply if we go up this road, or you know, and, and you could criticize Napoleon for for screwing up with the Russian campaign, but you know it attacking with 600,000 men into Russia is a, a logistical problem of like uh, maybe a little bit beyond their ability but like what they were doing up to that point and after yes. that point was still a, a, a huge step forward the Prussians didn't have any of that they were still arguing about how they would organize their army and would they have a staff organization at all to to assist the commander and and to do those secondary functions uh, that the commander couldn't necessarily do and that his subordinate officers wouldn't know how to do they still had a a very medieval style thing where they had the 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 king's suite right. would just be some officers that went with him and i guess he could delegate them to do whatever they were probably yeah. playing the flute and like and and uh i don't know talking about opera and speaking french and 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 drinking they weren't really actually like doing doing work they weren't, weren't a real staff organization i suppose he could have delegated said okay uh uh louis ferdinand uh you know i need you to go uh, take uh go do reconnaissance on this village and take the this Hussar battalion or something. But they weren't doing that. They didn't have a, a formalized system and, and communications and, and chain of command it, in that way. They really just had the top-down king, then uh, whatever aristocrats were in charge of whichever divisions, and then the officers below that, like just a straight pyramid structure. Yes, and I'm, I'm not like... I'm becoming more of an expert on this stuff, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, but from what I understand about it, uh, so there were several things like that's one of them. The core system uh, was vastly superior to the way that the, the other armies had done. It. Napoleon's armies marched much harder and longer and faster. Like that was the thing, these forced marches mm -hmm. and bivouacs. Napoleon didn't believe in tents. He didn't like having big 
camps, big army camps with big baggage trains. He had his guys forage from the local villages. They would requisition supplies and bring it back so armies could just sort of feed themselves as they go. And he would also have them do these massive forced marches of like 20, 25, 30 miles a day, which is insane. But, you you know, when you do that, you have to have the logistic or you have to have the uh, intelligence ability for your 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 whole army to like go out and say, OK, well, third core, if they pass through the village of uh, if they go through Dresden or, or, or whatever, eight shots, uh, Aachen or wherever the hell, if they go through that village or that town, we know that it has that they can forage enough food to feed themselves off the ground because we haven't been there yet. And, right. and we know generally like this is the time of year it is. The harvest has been taken in. Right. This is how much resistance we expect. You can't like do Napoleon's system without having without compensating for your lack of logistics with a lack with um, a strength in intelligence. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, but there was also uh, and I'm going to get to the I found the ages of the, the, the commanders because I can't I can't. Uh, <clears throat> I can't emphasize this enough how much this had to do with why Prussia lost um, because it's it's relevant to our situation today where you look at Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and Donald Trump and the people running this empire today are really old. They're really old. Like there's not like a I mean, who's the young guy like Pete Buttigieg? You know what I mean? You don't have yeah, they're, like they're a, senile idiots. They're senile old idiots. And uh you know, rest, to, resting not, on the laurels of the Lyndon Johnson administration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not to compare uh, these Prussian commanders because these guys were like gods and supermen compared to the <laughs> disgusting scum that formed the, the political. Well, I, I would say of, I, my, my, my joke was that Frederick the Great was at good as good at war as Lyndon Johnson was at Judaism and being a shitbag. Yeah, yeah. Right. That was my, exactly. you know, yeah. For, for, the, trying to reach the... Yeah, the, Lyndon Johnson <laughs> is the Frederick the Great of, like, destroying the white race from within, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, no, but it says that... Uh, it, it says that... This is from that book that you mentioned, um, Napoleon's Conquest of Russia, Prussia by uh, Petrie. And it says that... Um, of the French commanders, it is unnecessary to add up what has already been said in another volume. Of the Prussian generals, Count York von Wartenberg says, quote, In the presence of the young and reckless French leaders, the old, weak, and irresolute Prussian commanders showed themselves simply incapable of resistance. When the framework of the military system, which alone lent them some stability, had been once broken, they had no longer strength to stand. The emperor was uh, more careful in dismissing his officers as soon as they became old. Quote, the third battalions are full of officers who have a right to be pensioned off and who on account of physical incapacity can no longer serve. The corps of officers must be rejuvenated. Now that's what Napoleon wrote in 1806, September. Hofner describes how one of the infirm Prussian generals pleaded inability to attend a council of war at the hour named on the ground that he had not yet completed his usual morning sweat, a part of his cur. I don't know what a morning sweat is, but uh, it's some, some old guy thing. The Duke of Brunswick, who was the overall commander, and Marshal Mullendorf, veterans of the wars of Frederick, were borne down by the burden of 71 and 82 years respectively. And again, this is in 1806. Kalkreut was 69, Kleist, the governor of Magdeburg, was 73, Blucher, 63, Winning, uh, 70, Hohenlohe, 60. The younger generals were Tauenzein, 45, Weimar, 49, Eugene of Württemberg, 48, and Prince Louis, 33. So Prince Louis Ferdinand, the one I was talking about, who was a composer, was the youngest. 
By far, yeah. By far. Leto Vorbeck states that in the infantry of the line, 28 colonels out of a total of 66 were over 60 years of age. Of 281 majors, 86 were over 55, and 190 were over 50 years old. So Napoleon's guys were all... A lot of them were guys that were born like like Ney or like uh, Lan. Some of his greatest marshals were guys that were born from like a humble background and had just risen through sheer merit. So one one of the big things you see with Napoleon's army versus the Prussians is more of a meritocracy. And again, this is why I'm saying there are some things about the French Revolution that were good. It wasn't all bad. Uh, it opened it up so that talented guys like Lan or Ney or Napoleon himself could rise to the top where they belonged rather than being under idiots, you know, that just happened to be from the right family, which is what this country today is degenerating into. I mean, it's yeah. like the same couple of families running things. Um, I mean, and, what, what you're describing with the Prussian officer corps, though, it just sounds, I mean, this is like the boomer phenomenon of people who just won't retire and get out. Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. That's right. And uh, and of course, there were reformers. The reformers weren't didn't appear overnight after 1807. They were there beforehand, but their reforms were just ignored or were like treated as an affront to the king. Um, one of the other big reasons why uh, Napoleon was able to beat Prussia was just simple infantry tactics. Uh, the Prussians used the, the old line they did the, 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 the oblique attack, the di- like attacking in a diagonal. Isn't that there? The Frederick the Great. Oh, I don't know, thing. but I, I know that they were. I know that they still fought like the way they still fought the way people fought in the American Revolutionary War, where it's like the the you know you line up and you f- shoot your volley and then, yeah. and and these long thin lines of troops. Napoleon had developed uh, infantry squares where they where they form up into these squares that are like. Cavalry can't get into them, and they're they're somewhat more vulnerable to artillery, but they're still uh, not as vulnerable as if they were just packed together in one thing. But these infantry squares were were deadly fighting units, and uh, there was just on. on it's, every, it's like the Roman maniple versus a phalanx. Like the yeah. maniple, it's much more flexible. You can like. Yeah. So, and and Napoleon. The other thing is Napoleon. I mean, there's all you know. You, this we can get into Napoleonic War, but Napoleon was also a big believer in concentrating artillery. So he was very because he was an artillery officer, and he was very good at like forming these huge right. batteries of cannons. Like all the cannons are in one spot. Right, it's the and same principle just, as like concentrating your armor in World War II or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's similar like, to like yes. don't don't spread don't spread them out all along the line. Yes. Like, put them in one spot. It's exactly the same as the way the French had their tanks. Like a French would assign it like to spread the tanks out among the infantry in World War II versus the Germans concentrated all the tanks together. Very similar. So for all these reasons... Uh, France was beaten and, and or, or, or Prussia was beaten and what happened at, so first there was the Battle of Saalfeld uh, and there were several other smaller battles but Saalfeld um, and that's where uh, Louis, Louis Ferdinand was fell. killed yeah. yeah and I'll tell this story right now if you don't yeah. mind yeah, I'll, let's, I'll let's get right now. into it um, I just wanted to tell this story because it's one of these things that I I read about it and I was so blown away, and I'm like, how the hell does nobody know about this stuff? I mean, this is like I said, what I said about how once you start digging down the, you go down the rabbit hole, this stuff that seems very uh, obscure and old-timey and confusing and boring maybe, suddenly comes to life and becomes wildly interesting. So Louis Ferdinand, the one who was the, the 
nephew of Frederick the Great and the friend of Beethoven. And there's a very cool story about Beethoven and him where, uh, you know, because Beethoven was like the musical equivalent of Napoleon. He was um, the self-made like genius who just rises to to the heights of, of greatness through his sheer just raw talent. You know, raw talent is, is gets him there. And uh, but in the Europe of the day, Beethoven was seen as just you're not a nobleman like you know like who are you you know you're a, you know you're like musicians were like court musicians you know you're a court musician you're like a clown at a birthday party i mean like that's how you're seen by the nobles you're you're just like you're you're basically like uh you know how you'll have like a dj at a wedding yeah. that has oh, yeah, like, bring, in, bring in uh, mozart yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, bring in uh, yes. mr handel yes, yes yes these are like the great because there's no recorded music you can't play a record play or a CD or an MP3. So, like, you have living guys who write music that are like the background music for when you're doing your thing, and that's how they were seen. Beethoven, of course, uh, you know, Mozart was the great prodigy and genius and started the trend of this recognition that there's these, like, titans, these geniuses of art, and Beethoven built on and expanded that. Um, in fact, you could almost say Beethoven was to Mozart what Napoleon was to Frederick the Great. Very mm. similar kind of thing. And uh, there's an incident where Napoleon, or, or I'm sorry, where Beethoven was at a gathering uh, with some, and there was some countess that was the host and of this event or this party or this dinner where Louis Ferdinand was there too. And Nap Beethoven was incredibly insulted because she didn't even give him a place at the table. <laughs> Like, so it's Beethoven and he's not even allowed to sit at the table like with the adults with all the and so Louis Ferdinand what a bitch Louis Ferdinand ho hosted a thing it was like I guess at the same weekend or something he he hosts the dinner and he sits at the head of the table this is the nephew of Frederick the Great and he sits Beethoven at his like right hand you know it, like in a more prominent place than all the other nobles and that that Beethoven was everlasting like gratitude for this guy and Napoleon was very contemptuous of princes in general like he 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 always or, or did i say napoleon beethoven beethoven was incredibly com contemptuous of like you're somebody special just because you're the son of this family you know he he was much more like i'm special because i'm beethoven and i'm fucking better than you people i'm a genius you know um uh, and he so he gave louis ferdinand a great compliment he said that he composes music not as a prince but as like a composer <laughs> which, which was like was the that, highest praise that napoleon could give was that a, was that a snipe at his uncle for his flute concertos <laughs> oh maybe i don't know uh you know it's also interesting i'm joking i think <laughs> frederick the great's compo uh flute concertos were decent weren't they yeah I mean, yeah i mean he was kind of a renaissance man in that respect and a very very talented so the I mean, talent the talent ran in the family though. yeah the talent ran in the family and that's what i was going to say about louis ferdinand that this character who 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 was killed at this very minor battle uh, that no one even knows about, Saalfeld, before Yen and Auerstadt, um, when I studied him, I mean, he, he was like a Superman. He, he's like, he, and, 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 but he's typical for the guys of his age. But anyway, I had heard about him through uh, studying Beethoven, that he was this soldier who admired Beethoven, and he was actually distantly related to Frederick the Great, which he was actually Frederick the Great's direct nephew, his brother's son. Um. What I didn't know was the circumstances of his death. So he wasn't just killed in battle. Like, I thought he was just killed in battle, like, you know, cannons are going off bullets, and this guy fell in a battle. That was the end. No, he was the guy in charge. He was the commander-in-chief 
at the battle at Salfeld. And uh, he wasn't just fighting, you know, some random, he was fighting Marshal Lan, who was one of Napoleon's greatest marshals, who was also Louis Ferdinand's very handsome guys, blonde, uh, you know, just striking features. Apparently he was a real ladies man. Like the women loved him. The people loved him. And uh, he was like a popular hero. But Marshal Lan, if you see a picture of him, he's like French good looks you know i mean he's just this like dashing handsome frenchman with the like pale skin but like dark eyes dark hair this like wild i mean he's just like a fucking badass marshal lan and he was one of napoleon's one of the only one of napoleon's marshals who was very good at independent command like davu mm-hmm. you know like he could he didn't need napoleon telling him what to do to win a battle so what happens is Louis Ferdinand, who was one of the big guys champing at the bit for war with with France, squares off against Marshal Land's army at Salfeld. He has the river at his back, which was a big mistake. And uh, Land Land has about 12,000 guys, and Louis Ferdinand has 8,000. And they just, he's no match for Land. Land is, I mean, Louis Ferdinand was good, but Land is like a whole other level and he sort of he like kind of stumbled into it because land was the rear guard of like the whole of napoleon's yes. movement yeah yeah they cut they sort of stumbled into each other and uh what happens is the battle is being lost long story short the prussians are clearly losing and louis ferdinand realizing that the battle is lost assembles his cavalry and he had like three squadrons of cavalry and he tr- he's trying to turn the tide of battle how big is a squadron I forget. It's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of horses. And he puts himself at the head of this cavalry squadron and personally leads them into a direct attack, like right into the French. Like Alexander the Great kind of thing. Yes, this is like an incredibly uh, heroic, incredibly heroic thing. Like you're, you're a general, you see that you're losing the battle. And instead of like, you know, what a lot of generals I think would do is like, well, you know, we must order the retreat, you know, and I got to get me and my guys, got the AD camps need to hightail it out of here, you know, because we're losing this fucking battle. We will, we will lead this retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. We'll lead exactly. by example. Yeah, we'll lead Follow by me. example. Yes, yes. Uh, Louis Ferdinand is like, okay, I'm losing this battle. All you cavalry left, form up, and we're going to charge, and we're going to try to turn this around. Well, what happened was, again, this is the French, this is like two weeks after Austerlitz or something. So like these, these people, the French are at their peak form, their cavalry at their, at their best. Marshal Land is a, I mean, just really Louis Ferdinand is outclassed. And what happened was he leads his cavalry on this attack and the French cavalry encircle them and they're just cutting them to pieces and they're, and then they're fighting. What happens is Louis Ferdinand is surrounded and his aide-de-camps are killed. And uh, it was a uh, French quartermaster of uh, Hussars named uh, Goudet, I think his name was. Um, They surround Louis Ferdinand and they're fighting and he basically tells him surrender. You know, he knows that this is the commander in chief. He knows who this is. And he tells him to surrender. And, and Louis Ferdinand tells him basically, see, go to tote. I, like, I heard that it, it, maybe this is apocryphal, but I heard this, that he, even though Louis Ferdinand spoke French fluently, he says in German, see, go to tote, and slashes at the guy with his saber. And uh, they, ironically, the Frenchman probably didn't understand Louis Ferdinand speaking German, but he understood the saber under- thrust to he his under- face. He understood you know? the, the yes, slash, yeah. like yeah. And so I Louis, guess that's a no. And Louis Ferdinand, uh, which again, 
I have to say, like in the movies, that kind of thing happens. But in a lot of battles, if you study battles, a lot of times, typically what happens when a commanding officer is surrounded like that, he doesn't fight to the death. Like typically what happens is it's like, okay, you know, I, right, I you got me. I'm going to go take my vacation at, uh, you know, Madame de Sales and, and yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So Louis Ferdinand, uh, refuses to surrender. And, uh, the was probably a really good hussar and, uh, he stabs him and kills him. And, uh, so Louis Ferdinand dies this absolutely heroic death and, uh, his body was left on the field and then they found it later. Um, one of the great, uh, the guys who wrote the one of the best memoirs of the Napoleonic Wars, I forget his name, it began with an M. He was a French officer who, Napoleon read these memoirs, they were published in his lifetime when he was exiled at St. Helena, and he said it was like the best memoirs he'd ever read, and it was great. Um, this guy said that he remembers seeing Louis Ferdinand's body laid out, shirtless, you know, with the wound, and uh, they so they recovered the body, and he said there was something very tragic about it. Uh, this handsome, noble man, this this great composer. You can find his works on YouTube, by the way. If you search Louis Ferdinand, he, he wrote for chamber music. He didn't write whole orchestral pieces, but like piano quartets and everything. And it's very similar to Beethoven's style. Mm -hmm. Beethoven actually dedicated his third piano concerto to Prince Louis Ferdinand. So what happens is uh, Napoleon privately to land told him, serves him right because he was one of the ones leading the war party that's what he said mm. but publicly uh he sent the body back to the king and sent like an official thing like uh, condolences mm -hmm. and and said that he died as as uh soldiers as, as like a soldier should like in 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 heroically in battle and it was really which is so interesting because yeah, again, you think you, you think you'd do it backwards like be insulting to the king in public but i mean privately like yeah that guy was was died an honorable death and wow i respect that so much but right you know right. send the king like a haha -ha, loser <laughs> yes well that's see that's the funny thing in the 20th century like today and and again with america's comic book style of waging war it's like you you would be incapable of doing that it's like there is no way it's like bin laden they were like, he died like a coward. Like, how the fuck did he die like a coward? He died like, like a dog. Yeah. I saw, I saw one of his wives jump in front of him. Yes, like, he pulled his wife in front of him. It's like, it's like you're impossible. It's like it's when they impossible. said that shit. I remember that night. And I was like, bullshit. bullshit that bull fucking bullshit. shit. Yeah, it's like, it's like this. But like this guy wasn't fighting Zog for like. I mean, I didn't you know know that back then. But it's like this guy wasn't fighting yeah. America in caves for ten fucking years, and he's a coward. Come on. Right. So it just shows you the. It shows you the level to which we have sunk today. This was an era when the Jews were not really in power at all. Like they were, they were around, they were financing wars and doing things, but they had nowhere near the level of power that they do today. So this was a war between Europeans. And I know guys will look at this and be like, brother war, brother war. I don't want to, I don't want to see it. I don't want to learn about it. But it's like through these brother wars, it's like brothers fighting when they're kids. You know, it's through these brother wars is how the European nations shaped each other, how they f measured each other, how they they learned from each other. And that's one of the big things of this is Prussia learned from Napoleon. They learned like Napoleon was their arch enemy, but they learned from him and respected him. And so did Hitler. So anyway, Louis Ferdinand, though, again, what a noble gesture that Napoleon does that like he 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 even with this contempt that he has for Prussia at this point, he tells him, you know, wow, he died like a, like a hero, a hero's death. 
And uh, what I wanted to say about that was... But like in between ins- all the other insults he was throwing at them. Right, he, right, he took, right. He took time out of the insults to say, look, I... Yeah, this, right, this, exactly. Like, like Hector, you know, here's here's the body back. Yes, exactly. It was exactly like Hector. I mean, it's... And, and Napoleon was a man who was completely his head filled with, like, the classical world. Like, Napoleon was a man of, like, the classical world, down to the his Italian DNA and the fact <laughs> that he spoke Italian. I mean, Napoleon saw himself as... Uh, he wrote a book about I just discovered this that he wrote a book about Julius Caesar Napoleon in his own hand wrote a book about Julius Caesar That's how much he admired him. So Napoleon saw himself as a man of the of classical antiquity And that's why the hairstyles changed under Napoleon They went to the short Roman style of haircut and all the and, women's dresses look very much like Roman women's yes, dresses yes. The, 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 the whole that's the empire the, the, style the empire style is basically a, a self-conscious evoking of classical antiquity uh, from that period. So anyway, to just finish with Louis Ferdinand, this is how crazy the story gets. So first of all, this guy dies like in a movie. He's like the commander in chief of the army, losing the battle, leads the final charge, and then in like personal hand-to-hand combat with a French hussar, refuses to surrender and is killed. But then the story gets even gra- crazier. Marshal Lan, who was his opponent, on the not the guy who killed him, but the guy in command of the army that, that, that defeated his army. Marshal Land was later killed in 1809 at the Battle of uh, Wagram. Mm-hmm. Was that the cannonball ricochet? Yeah, yeah. fighting against the 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 uh, Austrians. The Austrians when the Austrians fought them in 1809, and this was an incredibly bloody battle. The, actually, at the time, it was Europe's biggest battle that it had ever had, which Napoleon would surpass that like the next year, but. Uh, Vagram, Marshal Land was killed by a cannonball that uh, basically mangled both his legs and the one was amputated and he lived for like 10 days later and uh, was clutching at Napoleon, you know, Napoleon, because they, they were very close friends. They were very close. They were like brothers. And uh, you can read in any old history of Napoleon's wars, like the friendship he had with Marshal Land and how how personally upset Napoleon was to lose him. Mm-hmm. And Marshall Lands was like a titan in his own right. And the crazy thing, uh, I, I could just mention it briefly, Greg, the thing about Beethoven and the big realist, because I've loved Beethoven all my life, but when you start to realize that Beethoven is sort of the soundtrack of the Napoleonic Wars, the example I use is that Prince Louis Ferdinand, Beethoven's third piano concerto is dedicated to him, which he only wrote five piano concertos. So it's like these are his big big piano orchestral works was dedicated to Louis Ferdinand when Marshal Land was killed Napoleon sent him back to Paris with this it wasn't like a parade it was a fucking army it was a whole army sent him back with these 300 gun salutes the whole way and the whole way they were playing this famous funeral march that Beethoven wrote so this Beethoven funeral march is playing for Marshal Land Beethoven himself was originally going to dedicate the Eroica Symphony to Napoleon. Some people think that it was actually because it's he changed the the title to on the uh, Heroic Symphony on the Death of a Great Man that maybe he meant Louis Ferdinand. And then this is the other crazy thing to just the, the like truth is stranger than fiction. So I said at the beginning of this that Jena and Auerstadt were like the fall of Prussia. And then they rose again, Phoenix, like in 1813. 
the War of Liberation. Well, in the War of Liberation, after the big battles of Leipzig and Dresden, when Napoleon was finally defeated and driven out of Germany, there was another battle that he fought called Hanau. Uh, and at the Battle of Hanau, the, the Napoleon won, but it was like a, a retreating action, you know, going back to France. The hussar who killed Louis Ferdinand was killed at this Battle of Hanau. And what's crazy about that is it's just like that guy's victory in close combat over Louis Ferdinand is like the story of Jena Auerstadt. Mm -hmm. It's like the Prussian, the great Prussian is just killed dead on the spot. And then this guy lives through all the other wars. He lives this, this hussar who killed him lives through the Austrian campaign. He lives through Wagram. He lives through Eilau, all these terrible battles. And then he lives through the Russian. I don't know if he was actually in Russia, but he was through the Russian campaign and he goes through all the battles of the 1813 German campaign, Leipzig, Dresden, and then is killed on his way out. This Frenchman is killed as the French are being driven out of, out of, uh, Germany and Beethoven also conducted the first concert at which his seventh symphony premiered was a charity concert for the veterans or the wounded veterans of the battle of Hanau where that French hussar was killed so I mean this is crazy I mean again these are like this is this is before the 20th century wars where it's just like millions of guys and fucking battles that go on like Stalingrad for like months. This is still of an era where you can have like the movie thing where like the leader is a great swordsman and he fights the other leader in hand-to-hand -hand combat and goes down. And it's just, it's an unbelievably heroic age. And there are so many stories like this. Ever since I discovered this, I've been trying to find it. Every book I can, I look up Louis Ferdinand and try to read more about him. This is absolute hero, you know. I mean, like a like a like a great military commander, a great composer, a great musician. These are the and then his opponent, Marshall Land. These are the kind of people that ran states back in those days. Or they and, weren't even running states; they were like second tier. Second running. tier, yeah, second tier, third tier. I mean, these are these are noble men. I mean, not noblemen, but noble men. And uh, it's just, and that's why to bring this all the way back around. That's why people should study the Napoleonic Age. Americans don't really study it. I'll tell you who did study it was all the Civil War generals. Like right, all the, right. they not only not only in terms of the tactics, like they learned from Jomini, the famous uh, he was like the Clausewitz before Clausewitz, who wrote all these manuals on on tactics and strategy. And uh, that was studied extensively at West Point by Robert E. Lee and, and, and all the Ulysses S. Grant and all the generals that later fought the American Civil War. And they were using his ideas and his tactics. But beyond that, there was a there was like an admiration and a hero worship for these figures of the Napoleonic Wars that, Ameri that the American generals had. And once again, this goes back and all, to and all the European generals. I mean, up to really up to World War One, even a little bit beyond that like the Napoleonic Wars were like the thing that everybody knew. The thing that everybody knew. And, and you know, I read this about Napoleon's memoirs uh, from uh, St. Helena, which weren't actually written by him. They were dictated to another guy. But it, it said that that was like the number one bestseller of the 19th century. Like the whole rest of the 19th century, they were still like in awe of Napoleon. And, uh, you know, another... One other little anecdote about this that is uh, something that I knew and then I learned more about it and then I was like, whoa. 
Um, there's a famous photo that I first saw in a book of Hitler's photography, uh, his famous photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, who took all the great pictures of Hitler. And he was a very close friend of Hitler. He snapped a photo of Hitler standing contemplating the tomb of Napoleon when Napoleon, right, when, yeah. when Hitler took Paris. And he said that Hitler stood at the tomb of, you know, Napoleon's body is lying in this massive, um, like, red marble sarcophagus. And uh, Hitler contemplated it for like an hour in like silent contemplation after he'd beaten France in 1940. Um, what I didn't know was that when Napoleon took Berlin, there's a painting of Napoleon contemplating Frederick the Great where he mm. like stood in contemplation of Frederick the Great for like an hour. And uh, it's a very famous thing that Napoleon did. So it's like Hitler was consciously. It's this is not just like ha! I beat the French finally. You no, know, yeah, like, it's not, it's, we won <laughs> last round. We win. It's like it's like Napoleon famously. I think he said that when he was at Frederick the Great's tomb, he's like, if this guy had been in charge, I wouldn't have. I still would have beat him, but it wouldn't have been as easy. You know, like like this is this guy was really great. And like a salute of his dead, like his, the enemy country's great leader of the past that Napoleon studied and learned from. Well, then Hitler studies and learns from Napoleon and is doing the same thing. It's like a, a sort of a conscious paying respect to this guy. Uh, it's just, there are so many little things like that. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one more, one more, Greg. Um, Napoleon had a son with the daughter of the Habsburg emperor. Uh, who was titled the King of Rome. And he he divorced Josephine, his first wife, because she was... She was a two-timing bitch. She was a two-timing bitch. I mean, it's funny, because she was like a... a um, she was a single mom, first of all. She had a couple kids from before Na Napoleon. She was older than Napoleon. Um, he married her when he was still, like, up and coming, you know, mm -hmm. uh, before he was, like, master of all of Europe. But he was very devoted to her and very much in love with her, almost like a simp. Um <laughs> <laughs> it was fashionable back then. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, she, she, she cheated on him and she was older and she wasn't able to give him a son and Napoleon needed a dynasty, you know. So uh, at the height of his power, like he's sick of her bullshit and he just divorces her and marries the daughter of the Habsburg Emperor Francis. Well, don't forget he had an affair with the... Uh, that Polish duchess. He had a lot of affairs. Oh, yeah, okay. which, which was funny. We were reading about that one <laughs> anecdote like... He found out when he was in Egypt or something campaigning against like in the pyramids, he finds out that Josephine has had an affair while he's away with some officer. So he immediately took a mistress to save face. Right, right, right. Because in the morality of the day, to be known as an adulterer was like way less bad than being known as a cuckold. Like, I, don't, being, I don't know if that's the... I wouldn't. I think we would say that's just the morality of France. Yes, that's just the morality of France. Yeah, if you're being cuckolded, that's like the worst thing. So you got to quickly get like cheat on your wife with somebody to show that you're not a, a total cuck. But his son, though, with the Austrian Empress, so Napoleon marries the oldest royal family in Europe, the Habsburgs. Big deal. Big deal. This is after 1809. Yeah, especially for an upstart like him. A total upstart. I mean, this is like now the Bonaparte line, which is like the nobody line you know Utter is now taking as his wife she was like 20 years younger than him the oh, the princess of the of the oldest family royal family in all of europe humiliation yes and 
her uh they had a son uh who napoleon loved he doted on him and uh he like i said the title he gave him was the king of rome and uh what happened was it's very sad when napoleon was beaten the first time in 1814 he tried to abdicate in favor of his son and they said no unconditional surrender and uh so he was forced to abdicate like his whole line basically and what the austrians did was they whisked his son away to vienna and like basically tried to brainwash him like they they like didn't teach him french they they like didn't talk about his his old man like they 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 completely like raised him with all things austrian to like get it in his head like break all ties to his father and uh you know once he started getting older he was like Hey, what about my dad? Like, you know, he's and well, my make, dad was Napoleon, and it would make them everybody got really scared when he's like, because they're all afraid that he's gonna take in the footsteps of his father. Well, anyway, what and happened? You can't, was, you can't cover that up. I mean, it's not in you know, a Napoleon. Yeah, like well, you find the kid finds out his dad's Napoleon. I mean, right. So, yeah. so what happens is uh, Napoleon comes back in the hundred days and is beaten for the last time at Waterloo. And this time he's exiled to St. Helena, which is a tiny little rock in the middle of the freaking South Atlantic. I mean, it's like between South Africa and Brazil, you know, is where this, and it's in the middle of the ocean. And because uh, they were so afraid that he might somehow sneak out and get back, like he yes. did first well, time. Well, well, well. When he came back from Elba, it was about a hundred thousand guys died, like in the in the Waterloo campaign in like a hundred days. So it's like a thousand guys a day. So so Napoleon, like if, is if just, some rowboat gets there, he might sneak off yes, the island to get yes. back. So we need to put him in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of no, and that's no exaggeration. I mean, the Prussians wanted to just shoot him, but like like the English were like, no, we'll exile him. But they had like round the clock guards. I mean, they put him through a lot of like the English put him through a lot of like petty indignities which he really was pissed at uh little things like they wouldn't let anyone call him the emperor they only called him general bonaparte and he's like who's general bonaparte he's like he's the victor of the egyptian campaign like 20 years ago <laughs> like you know like that's a that's a title that you know that guy no longer exists anymore but anyway he the sad thing was his son he was never able to see him again he never saw him again and his son is being so napoleon six years later dies on saint helena like the climate was very bad for him uh he dies and then his son died uh childless when he was still a young man he was in his i think he was like 18 or 17 and he dies and he never sees his father ever again and he's buried in the habsburg crypt with the habsburgs i mean this is napoleon's son you know well, that's in the 1830s. So fast forward to 1940. Adolf Hitler has marched the Anschluss in 1938 and has taken control of Austria and united it with former Prussia, now Germany, and has united all the Germans in one greater German Reich. And then Adolf Hitler has gone to war against France for the second time in 20 years. And unlike the first time when they fight for four years and it's still a bloody stalemate, he beats France in like two months completely and utterly and marches German troops into Paris. What does Hitler do? He takes the body of the King of Rome, Napoleon's son, and has him reburied in Paris and next to his father. You know, you would think that somebody else could have done that 
in the intervening years, like the French and the Austrians you know, had decent relationship. You somebody, but it took Hitler to think of it. It took because Hitler he was thinking think about the past. And well, what, and, what, what and, would Napoleon want? And Hitler was the first guy since Napoleon to simultaneously control Berlin, Vienna, and Paris all at the same time. You know, so it was a, but it was a hell of a gesture to the French, and it was a gesture. It's like it's showing that Hitler is like. He's making a gesture towards dead men. He's like making a gesture towards men that have been dead for over a century. It, again, this and shows... And also a, a very calculated fuck you to the Habsburgs. Yes, a very calculated fuck you to the Habsburgs and to the English. It's, it's like, you know, it's like, you know uh, Napoleon was only reburied. He was buried on St. Helena. Uh, he only came back to Paris when, you know, their series of incompetent kings that they put back in finally fell to Napoleon III, who was like not actually his son's son. He was distant related, but when he tried to relaunch like the second French empire and then he negotiated to get Napoleon's body back and they reburied him with all these honors. But again, that just shows you to what extent Hitler was cognizant of these massive historical uh, epics. And also it it's yet another incredibly moving story that's like something, the truth is stranger than fiction. It's like something out of a movie and it's something that you're just not going to find this in normal books. Like I found, I pieced these bits of stories together by reading other books, like finding in obscure indexes. This, this stuff is just not taught. It's not popularly known. Well, um, can you, what, how did Prussia come back from the 1806 catastrophe? Okay. Well, the big thing was that the Prussian reformers did. They made a lot of like basic reforms and a lot of practical reforms. Like one of them was a very simple thing that, uh, and again, this is Scharnhorst, Vomstein, yeah. Gneisenau, Vomstein and Hardenberg were the two. Oh, and Hardenberg. Mi mi uh, I guess sort of prime ministers. I think I, it Hardenberg was the first, like, technically prime minister, but they were the king's ministers. Yes. And yes. then the other ones were military officers, like Sean yes. Herskin, he's now York. Yes. Uh, the way they came back, so there were several reforms. Like, one of their reforms was Napoleon imposed on Prussia that they could only have a very tiny army. And so one of the ways they got around that was they would have everybody serve for like two years or, or like a year or something. Or it was actually a short period of time. It was like a year. And then they would cycle them out with a new group of guys and then a new group of guys and then a new group. And, but so just they, keep it, keeping the same cadre to like train them. Yes. But yeah. they built, what they did was then they built up a massive reserve, you know, because like everybody was getting military training, even though on paper. Even if the they're only like, and, and even if they're only like half trained, if you call them up, you can still, they still, they still know how to shoot, shoot the musket and they yes. still know how to march. Yeah. So you don't have to do the super basic stuff. They might not right. be crack troops, but though though you can turn them into that. Yeah, and one of the big things that happened after, uh, you know, one of the disheartening things for the king and for the Prussian leaders in 1806-07 was how quickly the rest of the country, once the army was beaten, like I said, it was a country with an, an army with a country attached to it. Yeah. And what you were talking about, the social stratification between the status of the army, which is one in 50 guys versus everybody else, the best and the rest, you know, is how the social structure of Prussia worked. Well, once the best are beaten, the rest don't give a shit. And they're just like, hey, France... Welcome, you know, yeah, even in France, a, you know. It's a, a Machiavelli point, right? When when you occupy a country, there you're more likely to have resistance if it 
if the country was was uh, separated out among a bunch of different barons and dukes, and if it wasn't really integrated as a, a nation state. Yeah. But if you invade a prince's territory and knock out the the royal the long standing royal family, then you're not going to face any resistance. Yeah. This is and in a, and in a way, Prussia is the the story you're going to tell is like a counter example where you would have they they were at least initially like beaten. But somehow they came back from it. Right. Well, and, and they were hanging on by a thread. I mean, there were a number of times where Napoleon was actually contemplating just getting rid of Prussia altogether, like which which happened after 1945. I mean, Prussia was literally erased from the map. But Napoleon thought about doing that a couple of times. Uh, they came close to it. And that's why, in fairness to, you know, the monarch, uh, Frederick uh, William, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm III, that's part of why he was so timid about, like, all these guys are like, hey, let's rise up against the French. He's like, if we do this again... And like the first time I listened to you guys, yeah, we're not, like, I'm not just losing my, my crown. I'm losing my head. Well, and, I, and I'm losing my country. Like my uh, like like Prussia will not exist anymore as a country. Like Napoleon will give a piece to to to, to Poland. He'll give a piece to Saxony. He'll give a piece to, you know, whatever. Um, but one of the things was they abolished. They abolished a lot of the extreme social class stratification things. Like, for instance, uh, well, one of the things was just discipline in the Prussian army. They still had flogging and stuff like that for like they had the, the, the gauntlet. Yeah, yeah, which was just brutal discipline. And uh, they abolished those things because again, the French army. Think of the French army. It's much more egalitarian, but in a good way. In in a way that is meritocratic. You know, in other words, when we think of egalitarianism, we think of, okay, well, holding back the white kid who's trying to learn in class because of the dumbest retarded nigger, uh, you know, you're, you're lowering the standard to meet the dumbest person in class. Um, but there's a good kind of social equality where, you know, bad social equality is when you artificially take this group and say they're a privileged class and they're better than the other group. And really, they haven't done anything to earn it. So like the best kind of social equality, which even Hitler was in favor of, is where anyone can rise to the best positions. So the Prussians learned from that. But like I said, when they, they were horrified by how fast the country just folded up. And the big thing that they started to do was to encourage German nationalism. And this was, like I said, the beginning of German nationalism. And one of them, you know, the philosopher Fichte uh, wrote or gave delivered a series of lectures that was uh, on on Germany and its humiliation, which Hitler patterned a lot of his the style of his speeches and the style of his topics. He saw himself as being like a second version of the same thing of of i'm not like I, i'm not a military guy like uh york or 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 uh blucher i am a an orator and a and a and a a political leader that is going to stir up my people to resist in their hour of humiliation that's how hitler saw the weimar period and you know i also wanted to mention greg Brownow uh on the inn where where on the Inn River where Hitler was born, if you look this up, uh, this gives you a sense of the flavor of the time, and you ask me how they came back. It says that this town where Hitler was born, uh, here it is, um, it became, uh, yeah, in... Uh, in 40 years, Branau changed hands three times. In 1779, it became an Austrian town under the terms of the Treaty of Teschen. So remember, Branau was on the border between Bavaria and Austria. Yeah. 
which settled the War of Bavarian Succession. During the War of the Third Coalition against Napoleon, the Nuremberg bookseller Johann Philipp Palm was arrested at the Branau Fortress by French troops and executed for high treason by personal order of Napoleon in 1806. And then under the Treaty of Schönbrunn in 1809, Branau became Bavarian again. And then in 1816, when it was when all of Europe was reorganized after Napoleon was defeated, uh, it finally went back to uh, Austria. But so you look this guy up, Johann Philipp Palm, and there's a beautiful statue to him in the city of Branau. And this is a statue that Hitler for sure would have seen as a kid. It's a statue in 1866. Like I said, instead of Superman, Batman or something, this is the kind of person that young little kid Hitler would have looked up to. It says that this guy, Johann Philipp Palm, was born 1768 and died in 1806, was a German bookseller and a strong anti-French agitator and freedom fighter. Uh, it says that what happened was he was uh, in the spring of 1806 the Stein Publishing House sent the bookselling establishment of Staga in Augsburg a pamphlet written by another guy Philip uh, Christian Yellen in Ansbach entitled uh, Deutschland in seiner Tiefen oh no this is the this is the thing I'm, I'm sorry Fichte I got the thing confused this is what's called Germany and her deep humiliation so uh, Deutschland in seiner Tiefen Ernid Drigung, Erne Drigung, Erne Drigung, Erne Drigung. Is that what it is? Yeah, which strongly attacked Napoleon and the behavior of the French troops in Bavaria. On learning of the violent rhetorical attack made upon his regime, and failing to discover the actual author, Napoleon had Palm arrested in and handed over to a military commission at Branau am Inn on the Bavarian-Austrian frontier with peremptory instructions to try the prisoner and execute him within 24 hours. Palm was denied the right of defense, and after a show trial on the 25th of August, 1806, he was shot the following day without having betrayed the pamphlet's author. A life-size bronze statue was erected to his memory in Branau in 1866, and on the centenary of his death, numerous patriotic meetings were held throughout Bavaria. Palm is briefly mentioned in Adolf Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf, in the first page of the book. Hitler wrote, quote, Today I consider it a good omen that destiny appointed Branau am Inn to be my birthplace. Later on the same page, Palm is mentioned by name as a, quote, uncompromising nationalist and enemy of the French, put to death here because he had loved Germany even in her misfortune. Hitler compares his death to that of Leo Schlageter, who had been executed by the French also after being betrayed to them. So isn't that something? This guy Palm was executed by Napoleon and was a hero of little kid Hitler, you know, growing up. I mean, this was like the town, there's a statue to him in Branau. So this kind of nationalism is what the Prussian reformers encouraged. And the whole idea was to get the people on our side. So this time when we fight the French, it's not going to be just this elite little Prussian force of military men. It's going to be the people that are backing us. And this culminated in the famous proclamation that the King Frederick Wilhelm III made in 1813. On mein Volk. On mein Volk, to my people. And this is like one of the 
big seminal documents of German nationalism because this was the first time that a king directly addressed his people. Now, Napoleon did that all the time. You know, he put out his bulletins. And so, again, they are learning from Napoleon how to, like, enlist the masses, how to get the people on your side. And the climax of the Third Reich's movie, Kohlberg, which starts out in 1806 and ends in 1813 as the people are rising up, is... Uh, Gneisenau, who's like the proto-Nazi in the movie, he's like so full of zeal. He convinces the wavering king to start writing, and he starts out writing uh, to my people, and that's like how the movie ends. So, uh, yeah, this this is how they they get Prussia and that's, and ready that's, to And then go. the song they have the song "Das Volk steht auf, der Sturm bricht los." The storm breaks loose, which which is later the yeah, yeah. Pay, from the the Goebbels speech to. Uh, Total, total war. Krieg, yeah. Total, he, total, yes, exactly. He uses that same line, das Volk steht auf, the people stand up, the yes. people rise up. They rise up. And so uh, so that's where, you know, they, they're getting Germany ready to go. Uh, they're getting the people on their side. They're making military reforms. They're abolishing humiliating punishments like flogging. They're changing some things with the social structure. And then what happens in his, in 1813, the specifics of it is the king refuses to budge. Like he doesn't move either way. Um, but one well, of his just before we before we talk about oh, that, I, I just wanted to throw in there. So what's ama- what's remarkable to me about the reforms is that they didn't. They were talking about doing reforms before 1806. A lot of these things, like uh, abolishing serfdom, or reforming the military, they talked about, and a lot you know a lot of people were pushing for, but they couldn't get it through because of the old guard and the aristocracy didn't want to do it. And it took like the country being almost torn apart for uh, these reformers to be able to just start implementing them. Yes. And like as soon after Yen and Auerstadt had completely demolished the legitimacy of the sort of old system, like the reforms just came through fast and furious. Because when you read history, sometimes it'll say like, oh, uh, they just started doing these reforms. It's like, well, where did they get the authority to do those reforms? And why hadn't they done it before? It's not that they hadn't thought of it. Right. It's that they just weren't able to push it through right. because of this opposition. Right. Yeah, and it's it's a classic, like, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I mean, I mean... I, it's a classic, like, people don't do stuff until they're, like, in danger of being destroyed. Until they're forced to do it, yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, you I mean, know, turn your homework into the last second. You know, some of, of it, some of it, I mean, some of the experience from a military perspective of Prussia vis-a-vis um, France during this period is sort of... I mean, not totally, but it's somewhat comparable to the Soviet army versus the Nazis in terms of like the difference between 1941 and 1945, yeah, like right. how much the Soviets learned from the Germans, how much they changed Which they things. they seem to have forgotten now, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean. Like how- you think Marshal Zhukov would be uh, uh, you know, dithering around like they are? <laughs> right, 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 right. But no, but they, they really. Like, they're, they're, uh, uh, like the 1945 Soviets were doing the, the mass attacks and, and uh, supporting uh, tank attacks with uh, mechanized infantry or at least uh, infantry riding on the tanks. And they were, they, figured out like you know people people often like talk down of the soviet sort of achievement because it's oh well they just got all the stuff from the americans which is you know partially true but yeah. it, they they had gone a long way from 1941 to 1945 yes exactly so uh yeah and there's you know what i i just i just googled it and there's actually a good if people were really interested more there's a there's a there's a wikipedia entry called the prussian reform movement that really breaks down the figures and the details of it and it's something that um you know, Wikipedia is, um, 
It says this article has been translated from the article Reformis Prussianis from Prussian in the French Wikipedia and requires proofreading. So it's like one of these Wikipedia uh, articles. Reformer Prussian. Yeah, it's one of these like uh, Wikipedia articles that hasn't yet been butchered by the Jews. You know, it's like it has a lot of useful information because like it's translated from the French Wikipedia. It's not like a like a, a yeah like a, if you know, learn you know I, I advise anybody if you don't read French like learn. 100 words of French and then just make it a policy to only read Wikipedia in French. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just as a, and I just, you know, uh, it's like my petty protest against the English language and it's, uh, well, that's the other butchering. thing I will say, I will say, Greg, about the, and Wikipedia. about the Napoleonic Wars is unfortunately, ever since the 20th century, when we fought two world wars on the side of the UK, all of Napoleonic history is always made available to Americans in terms of fucking Waterloo and the English mm -hmm. and which is really annoying because like the biggest battle of the entire Napoleonic era and Napoleon you could say was his greatest defeat in terms of like his most significant defeat was the Battle of Leipzig in 1813 and this is the climax of the wars of liberation against uh, to drive Napoleon out of Germany um, but Leipzig was the largest battle fought in world history up until 1914. So huge. How many people have heard of Leipzig? Everybody knows Waterloo. Yeah. Some people have heard of Borodino. But Leipzig. The, the Volkerschlacht, um, the Battle of Nations. The Battle of the Nations, exactly. And uh, uh, But yeah, so, so they, they got their act together and they came back swinging and they beat. And, and of course, the Prussian generals like... Uh, Blucher carried the war all the way straight into France and uh, and into Paris. So, uh, yeah, it's an incredible story, and it's something that was hugely influential, influential on the development of German nationalism and on the sort of self-image of Adolf Hitler. Like, how he saw himself was like this guy that the bookseller or, or Fichte who wrote, uh, not as a philosopher, but who gave the speeches, Hitler saw himself as Germany in its deep humiliation after World War One. I'm going to light the flame of resistance and of like national rising. Uh, that's how Hitler saw himself. Yeah, I was going to say with, with uh, going back to the British, uh, these this Petrie guy whose book we've mentioned, uh, Napoleon's Conquest of Prussia, 1806, and he has another one called uh napoleon's napoleon's oh. last campaign in germany 1813 yeah it's just the two parts it, of you what can, we're talking about he's using a lot of like french and german sources and he's writing in the early you know before just before world war one right uh for an english-speaking audience because he thought that they didn't know enough about these things yes yeah and 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 actually you know prior to world war one uh like I said, I mean, I mean, all the American Civil War generals studied the French and the Germans and everybody else. And it's like, again, this kind of like sort of Anglophilia really developed during the First World War uh, that, that has hurt. And it's, it's degraded into a complete arrogance that would be alien to, well, the founding fathers and any of yes. the people any of the people admired by these the anglophiles it would be alien to wellington i mean it would be alien to like you know you read what wellington said about napoleon what he said about blucher i mean 
I mean, uh, it, it, it's it's a very much a product of the 20th century world wars, and now even that's disappeared. I mean, like like the the thing was, it's like the Napoleonic Wars have been reduced, were reduced through much of the second half of the 20th century to just like Wellington versus Napoleon. I mean, there's the famous Sharps films yeah, right. uh, that are uh, Sh- uh, that, Sean Bean is that his the name? Peninsular War between uh, yeah, Wellington yeah. So, and so the like, French and Spain. Um, is it Sean Bean, the guy that played? Uh, yeah, Sean Bean. Um, I don't a- know. I've seen. I've seen one of them. There's like an episode where he's he's transporting like Rothschild gold across Spain. It's like kind of woke and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I like Sean Bean. He's a good actor, and uh, th- it's a series of films, the Sharp movies from 1993 to 2008, and they're 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 like a, like a James Bond type movies that all take place in Spain. Which Spain? What happened in Spain during the Napoleonic Wars? It's called. People call it Napoleon's Vietnam. It's like this side war, this proxy war that he was never quite able to win because he was right. never able to devote his full attention to it. And the British were very heavily involved there. And that's one of the few areas of theaters of the entire Napoleonic Wars where the British were directly like British troops were involved in fighting the French. Uh, but again, that series, it's a good series. But once again, it's like ignores 90 five percent of the napoleonic wars was not fought with british redcoats you know so it just sort of puts it in this kind of anglophile like viewing it through that lens if people want to track down a really great film that will show you like what napoleonic warfare actually looked like better than any movie ever track down it's on youtube actually it's the russian war and peace it's a the, series the of Soviet war and peace. The Soviet war and peace, featuring the actual Russian army. Yes, uh, it was made in what was the year? 1966-67. and uh, there's a channel called uh, Moss oh, Film. I'll, I'll post it. Yeah, yeah. There's a channel. And it's it's a uh, it, it kind of uh, there's a much better BBC version of War and Peace that that actually like with Anthony Hopkins that like tells the full story and gives proper place to all the characters, and it's like 24 episodes long, and I recommend that too. Actually, that's like a better if you want to get to know War and Peace without reading that cinder block of a book, um, you can you can you can get uh, watch the BBC version with Anthony Hopkins. But this Russian version, while it kind of condenses the characters and the interpersonal drama is is given sort of the short how shrift. on how on russian yeah um the visuals because the bbc version is just like you know when there's battle scenes it's like 10 guys you know, on like a sound stage or something 10 guys in a field you know they keep showing the same 10 guys over and over again this this like you said the soviet army uh it costs uh the equivalent of nine point two one million dollars in nineteen sixty seven rates, or the equivalent in nineteen twenty nineteen, would be sixty to seventy million. Uh, the most expensive film made in the Soviet Union, but it is massive. The battles they had hundreds of thousands of extras the uniforms it's just it will give people and what the best part about it is the french guys are speaking french the russians Mm -hmm. are speaking russian so it gives you like a flavor 
of the War of 1812, and and also Austerlitz is portrayed. Um, but yeah, if people want to like get like a picture in their minds of the awesome scale of these wars from that period. Track down the Soviet War and Peace from like 1960s. It was four films, a series of four films that are all like sequels to each other. All right, we were no, we we stopped at we were you were about to talk about the uh the turning the turning the tide so when napoleon is coming back from russia napoleon like leaves his troops he he marched most of the way back with them but then he had to scurry back to paris in order to make ensure his that his he wouldn't be overthrown yeah and then uh at the same time the prussian officers uh started to agitate for a uh, uprising against Napoleon. Yeah, so because in, in uh, York the, was the one. York is the one who. Uh, he, what he did was the, the Prussians were the unwilling allies of the French in the invasion of Russia. So Prussia was forced to contribute so many tens of thousands of troops to the Russian campaign. And when Napoleon was defeated, or or rather defeated himself in in Russia, and was forced to retreat. Uh, you know, his, his coalition is fragmenting and it's a, that's an amazing, excuse me, that's an amazing story in itself. The story of 1813, essentially what happened in 1813, I'll give you an overview is, uh, the, all the reformers and everybody is encouraging the King Frederick Wilhelm. Now's the time. Let's join Russia against Napoleon. Uh, Russia's greatest general Kutuzov uh, he felt that the Russian army was exhausted uh, after Bordino and these other campaigns. Like they, they suffered almost as badly as the French. So he's like, we've kicked them out of Russia. We can't go any further. And But the Tsar Alexander was very young and full of spit and fire and piss and vinegar. And he's like, no, we're going all the way to Paris. We're going we're gonna to beat Napoleon once and for all. And uh, so one of the Prussian generals, York, decides to... He didn't join the Russians, but what he did was he declared a ceasefire with the Russians and, like, parlayed with them. And this, like, when the king, Friedrich Wilhelm, found out about this, he was pissed. He's like, oh, God damn it. Now now Napoleon's going to come and destroy us again. But it kind of forced his hand, and it forced him to pick a side. So once York did that, it's like, oh, shit. Well, we're all in. We got to go. And this is all, it's all up in that part of, because um, the king was basically relegated. Well, wasn't he relegated to like Maymel or to uh, Königsberg? Yeah, Königsberg. He was in Königsberg for a while. Uh, now today's Kaliningrad, and uh, and York was like right up. Was supposed to be supporting the French attack into Russia, but or no, he had been retreating with the he'd French. He'd been retreating with the French. Yeah, and and uh, somehow hadn't gotten annihilated and and was able yeah. to broker a deal with the Russians. Yeah, he he basically has a ceasefire with the Russians, and this forces the king to pick a side. Now, again, back to uh, just quick thing of Napoleon uh, or, uh, uh, with uh, Beethoven as the, as the soundtrack of the Napoleonic Wars. The King Friedrich Wilhelm, he, when there's this uprising and he declares, I'm mein Volk to my people and signals the, the general uprising against the French, he institutes a new award for bravery called the Iron Cross. And the Iron Cross was, that's why the Iron Cross, the old ones, the first ones have the year 1813 on them the first ones and don't they all have 1813 on the reverse 
No, I don't. Well, maybe on the reverse, but I know like underneath on yeah. on that they have the year, so it's like nineteen fourteen. Yeah, right. The campaign year in 1870, Yes, eighteen seventy. Yeah. So the campaign year. Yes, exactly. So he institutes the Iron Cross, and later, years later, in the eighteen twenties, uh, Beethoven dedicated the Ninth Symphony, the Big Ode to Joy, is dedicated to King Friedrich Wilhelm. So again, showing the connections here. But so the guy who creates the Iron Cross. Um, he signals to the uprising on Mein Volk, and uh, and what Napoleon does is, and this isn't the first or the last time that he does this. Napoleon pulls off one of these mobilization feats that's like insane. He from Moscow, at a certain point on the retreat after they cross the Berenzina River, which is like one of the great nightmares of of all military history. Like 20,000 guys die trying to cross this river under like constant attack by Russians and Cossacks and with ice and guys, like guys, tra- there's a firsthand account of a guy who crossed the bridge over the Berezina and it's like, you're, you're, you're climbing on top of bodies like three, four deep, you know, uh, uh, trying to scramble across this bridge. Um, but Napoleon, after they get over the bridge, Napoleon realizes, as you said, that trouble's brewing in Paris like the people weren't quite aware of what a disaster it was yet yeah but he has to hightail it back to paris and he does this secret coach ride with his minister calencourt who was his master of horse and he wrote a memoir about their ride together across germany which is just fascinating but he makes it back to paris and word gets to him that the prussians are starting to rise up and somehow napoleon pulls an army out of his ass that is like hundreds of thousands of men strong, mainly because they were all teenagers. But like, <laughs> but the incredible thing is, he so you know horses take a long time to cultivate. Like you can't just out of nothing like create an, a, a great squadrons of cavalry. Most of the horses, the best cavalry, the horses that the French had in all their wars died in Russia and were eaten. You know, were were, right. were eaten in Russia. Like this guy talks about. Um, like when they sh- shot the, the the one guy that is a, was a volunteer who wrote a memoir, he talks about they were so desperate, like they shot this horse because they were going to eat it, and he like with his hat like quickly got to where the bullet wound was and caught the blood, and then or he had it in a little bowl and then heated it over the fire so that it would congeal and just like ate it, ate the congealed blood. Like that's how desperate for food they were. So all the horses are gone. So Napoleon's very weak in his cavalry arm, but he has by by bringing this army of teenagers, French, like you know they're like eighteen, seventeen, not like when they a year later when they were like sixteen and fifteen, but. He mobilizes out of nowhere this massive army and invades Germany. He actually invades Germany before the Prussians could get... 400,000 men. Yeah, 400,000 men after he just lost 600,000 in Russia. Or, I'm sorry, 580,000. Comes into Germany... And starts winning battles with these kids. It's their first battle, and he's and he's winning battle after battle. And uh, at the beginning of the campaign, he wins two big battles, Bautzen and Lutzen. And then uh, that's in the spring, and then there's a ceasefire. Both sides agree to a ceasefire because they're both exhausted, and they need to like sort of plan things out, their next moves. And during that ceasefire, all kinds of frantic negotiations were happening. And... Napoleon's ally, the Austrians, who've been 
you know, his frenemies since uh, 1809, send, since Wagram. They send their most frenemy person, uh, Metternich, to... Metternich, who was a real, like, even Beethoven knew about Metternich, and he, he was known, like, at that period as just, like, a two-timing, like, just complete... So who, who would win on, like, a, a, a competition of treachery, Metternich or Talleyrand? That's the funny thing. They're very similar. They're very similar guys. They're sort of like von Papen, you know, later in Hitler's <laughs> day. Like, no matter what regime rises and falls, these guys stay in power. They're very good at, like, picking the winning side. Uh, Metternich is a very shrewd negotiator, and he has this, like, eight-hour conversation with Napoleon where he tells him, like, look, you have to withdraw to the borders of France. You have to give up all your recent conquests and then we'll respect, like I can then convince the Russians and everybody else to respect you and your dynasty. And Napoleon's like, you don't understand. Like we will, our government, first of all, we have sacrificed so much blood in all these wars. Like we can't just hand it all over without a fight. Second of all, uh, me personally and certainly my son our 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 family will fall if if we basically uh give all this shit up because it's like you old princes that have like centuries of of tradition behind you you don't need victory to stay in power but i can't now he metternich kind of maneuvered him to say that to sort of make it about him so that it would make it harder for the French people to fight for Napoleon because it's like, what are we fighting for now? Are we fighting for France or are we fighting for Napoleon? He tried to like maneuver him. Basically what Metternich did was he he maneuvered Napoleon so that Napoleon would seem like the aggressor. And that gave Austria the pretext to side with Prussia and with Russia and with Sweden and with England and join this new coalition. So the ceasefire is over uh napoleon is determined to win some big victories and just that's how he always does it you know napoleon always gets out of a such a bad situation by just beating everybody and then when they're beaten then he can dictate terms so he tries it again with this massive germany german army or the army in germany of these kids and uh they come up with this plan called the trachtenberg plan i mean the allies do the allies do which is really kind of funny uh basically the plan is whenever we encounter napoleon we're going to hightail it and if we encounter his marshals nay uh land was dead by that time but you know murat Salt, uh Salt, davu when we f- when we encounter an army led by his marshals we will fight but if we fight napoleon or if we encounter napoleon himself we just retreat and it is an a, a, a absurd testament to how great napoleon was as a commander the the thing of a god of war that the way to beat napoleon is just not to fight him at all um but the strategy worked uh napoleon won a big battle at dresden like every time napoleon they, they, he corners one of their armies he beats them no matter what no matter what's going on he doesn't see he didn't have the cavalry anymore to follow up his his victories so he uh, couldn't like pursue their armies and he could never he close like, the cut, sail you know cut them down and and route them yeah he couldn't just destroy them you know he could beat them but he couldn't destroy them because his cavalry arm was so weak but what happens is his marshals, one after another after another, are getting beaten by the va- various allied armies, and they are all closing in on him. And they all close in at Leipzig, the Battle of the Nations, as you said. And there were like four kings on the battlefield and everything. And this is the big battle I told you about. And Napoleon is finally, finally beaten in personally. In a, a three-day battle with 
how many hundreds of thousands of men. Yeah, and, and to give people a, a, an idea, like Gettysburg was the biggest battle of the American Civil War, and uh, and it was fought almost fifty years later. You know, and a much and, and this battle, I don't know, it's like an order of magnitude larger than than Gettysburg. I mean, this is a a big battle. And uh, and that was it. And then when like they, they said, closed, I mean, the funny story about uh, Leipzig is the Allies basically like clo- Napoleon tried to do the thing where he would shift his force to one side and beat beat, beat one them, army and then, and then shift to the south. But they closed in on him and got him uh, at Leipzig. And then he he tried to like retreat, and he re- they were retreating across the bridge at Leipzig. He he uh, delegated to one of his marshals or uh, I forget who saying okay well your job is to guard the bridge and then blow it up once everybody's gone marshal marshal or the general delegated to a corporal and said okay corporal like blow the bridge once everybody's across uh the whole massive the whole the the grand armée is trying to recruit retreat across that bridge and filing through the town and like coming out that corporal uh blew the bridge too early yeah. as like guys are on it i mean i don't know yeah. I, I don't know how jumpy he was to blow the bridge but he blew it and uh they cut off like a third of napoleon's like remaining force yes and there were a lot of uh the other big problem that napoleon had was a lot of his best guys were huge numbers of his forces were stuck in garrisons in they were besieged in garrisons all over germany so like Davu was and Na- Poland too. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Germany and Poland. Davu was uh, Napoleon's greatest marshal, probably. I mean, that's how he's rated. Uh, Epic History TV. When they ranked him, they said he was the best, and and a strong case can be made that he was, because he was the best at independent command, like without Napoleon. And he's the one, by the way, at Jena Auerstadt. Uh, the story of Vienna Auerstadt is Napoleon, we, we, we were just watching this thing, Napoleon bumps into their advance guard and thinks it's the main army, destroys them. Meanwhile, Davo, who was like with his own advance guard, uh, bumps into the main army and like is outnumbered two to one and beats them too. And and when he, when he uh, you know, the famous line was when he basically sent the equivalent of a telegram to Napoleon saying... We found the main army. There's this many guys. Napoleon s- sent it back. He said, "Tell your tell your marshal that he must be seeing double. Like there's no way that he's fighting that many guys." So that's how great Davu was. Well, Davu was pinned down during this period in some fortress somewhere uh, in North Germany. I forget which one. And Davu was not able to come to Napoleon's aid. So what happens is after Leipzig, like I said, there was that battle Hanau where uh, the French hussar that killed Louis Ferdinand is now killed. And Napoleon suffers. I mean, he's still winning battles with everything. Like, he's still winning battles, but he's running out of guys. Didn't and he? It, I, Epic History TV mentions this, that in one of those 1813 battles, he was standing on the battlefield watching the Prussians amazed, uh, stunned at how not incompetent they were. And he said, Ces animaux ont appris quelque chose. Yeah. These animals have learned something. These animals have learned something. That's the famous Napoleon. That's like high praise from Napoleon to the <laughs> Prussians. These animals have learned something. Yes. So uh, it's so so wonderfully French in how uh, pompous and yes. uh, dismissive yes. it is. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And uh, yeah. So so he's driven back to France and then fights this other campaign that 
was really like people call it the 1814 campaign when all the Allied armies are finally crossing the French frontier and they're crashing into France. Remember, this is the first time that Allied armies are actually in France since like the 1790s. Mm-hmm. So this whole and again, very much like Hitler as far as like the the, the pattern of of Hitler, you know, gets. An arm, an enemy declares war on him. In many cases, it's the same one, Britain or or whatever, and Hitler attacks them, beats them first, or 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 pins them down in their own country. Or you know, the the invasion of Russia is the obvious, the biggest parallel. I mean, they both invaded Russia for like the same reason, essentially, because they were at war with Britain. They yeah. couldn't invade Britain, and they knew that if they knocked Russia out, it would win their war with Britain. Um, but now it's like. For Napoleon, this is his 19, late 1944, early 1945, where they are crossing into France proper. And Napoleon actually fights in 1814 with, like I said, now he's with the 15-year-olds, but he fights a series of battles that is like military historians study his 1814 campaign at like Napoleon at his most brilliant because he's he's like a boxer that can knock a guy out with one punch and like you said it's like he's surrounded by eight guys and he's just like steps to the right knocks the guy out steps to the left knocks the guy out steps back to the right and he's frantically going back and you know because the the armies are closing in the battle lines are much smaller so it's not it's easier for him to do this to shift from this one yeah. to that one to that one but eventually paris falls before napoleon could get back to it and his marshals convince him it's over you know you got to abdicate which he did for like a year and then he came back for the waterloo campaign but uh but yeah and so the prussians got their revenge um you know, uh, apparently it's sort of a sad chapter. Actually, it's not a very glorious thing. That um, I mean, apparently the French treated the Prussians like shit in eighteen oh six oh seven. Once they took over, they like subjected them to a lot of humiliation. So now the Prussians are are it was their turn, and they're treating the French like shit when they march into Paris. But uh, yeah, of quite an epic like you know defeat and comeback. So. Uh- Say so I, I was you know reading about this and the comparison struck me to the American Revolution, just in that how sort of di- how different the German War of Liberation was from the American, and they're happening, they happened within fifty years of each other, and the American War, uh, American Revolution was against, or it was really a, a British war of revolution against their own king, but with a, a, se- a separation because there was no America when the revolution started. It was just British subjects revolting against their king for, um, you know, for greater political autonomy. And then the Prussian War of Liberation was also kind of against a foreign occupation. It was against a foreign occupation. It was against Napoleon. But in a way, it was a revolution against their own king without actually having a revolution. It was the people, uh, a lot of the military officers, not revolting against their king, but pushing uh, pushing for a, a direction that he didn't want to go, which was toward more liberalism. And so it would be almost as if you had the American Revolution for more liberalism or for a cer- certain uh for maybe uh, voting rights in parliament or something like that but we're still retaining the rule of the british king in america and that's sort i mean sort of what happened in prussia you had a uh a revolution where the king was still in power 
there was some li liberalism and the king was forced to grant some concessions and allow for liberal reforms to take place. And at the end of, of uh, the 1815 campaign, all, a lot of these officers and uh, reformers and intellectuals all were thinking, all right, well, that's it. You know, we've, we've proven that liberalism is the thing. We've proven that, uh, that this can lead to a golden age. But Frederick William III thought that this was very dangerous and immediately cracked down on all of the liberal reforms and ideas that had, had basically the only thing, one of the, the main thing that survived was the um, getting rid of serfdom. They, they didn't right. go back to serfdom. That, that's, you can't really bring that back once you've gotten rid of it uh, very easily. But he, the other reforms he, he didn't like, and he, he stayed as king uh, until his death in 1840. And it was a known as a, a as an era of just reaction and stagnation and sort of a, a false like cultural. There was there was cultural uh, flourishing. I mean, throughout Germany broadly, but there wasn't as far as the government or as far as the uh, politics were concerned. It was sort of a, a weird continuation of the era of like absolutism of the 18th century. Yes, up until 1848. Yeah. Um which was the great like liberal revolution. So what, how, you know, we've mentioned that liberalism doesn't mean the same thing in the early 19th century that it does now. What was like important about, I mean, is, are there examples that were uh, lessons we can draw from the liberalism of 18 of the you know, 1813, 1814 era? Is there something for us to that we should emulate here or lessons we can draw no <laughs> i mean that's the no. short answer i don't think so i think that uh i think that the liberalism of the era like like i would have been a liberal back then i probably would have been a liberal like i i i would have been you know which which meant like a nationalist at the same time i mean i mean liberalism and nationalism were 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 sister ideologies at the time um but liberalism meant things like it was, it, liberalism then was a sort of a an extreme position but it was a reasonable extreme position given all the defects of the absolute monarchy i mean you mentioned it earlier when you said um like the french revolution people people have a tendency to to dismiss it or say oh this is really bad and we should have gone back to monarchy well look if you're if you're if the people are having a revolution I think it's safe to assume that you, the government, have been doing something wrong. I mean, maybe the revolution yeah. results in worse things happening after it. I mean, it's yeah. but it's like the Russian Revolution. People say, "Well, we should have the you know the czars were better, and the Russian Revolution was terrible." Yeah, the Russian Revolution was Jewish, and or the Bolshevik Revolution was. Let's distinguish it from the February Revolution. But the czar had really screwed up a lot to 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 bring things to that point. It wasn't like. Uh, you know, you could have had a revolution out of nothing. And I think the same thing is true of France. French Revolution, for all of its excesses, was going to be the the monarchy had so mismanaged things up to that point that the French Revolution happened. Well, I don't even think it was necessarily the monarchy. I think it was the aristocracy. I think uh, the the you know, if I mean, if you look at Napoleon's time, like Napoleon reestablished, I mean, he transformed France from I, I think 
the the lessons of Germany are less valuable in this sense. I mean, like what what I draw out of that period for Germany is how a nation was formed under duress and under humiliation, how a sense of national identity was forged, and how the people were enlisted to this. I think the it's more interesting what happened in France in terms of Napoleon coming along and restoring a monarchy or creating a new one, basically. Uh, and and really, single-handedly standing up to all of Europe. Yeah, and it's an absolute monarchy. I mean, the emperor of France is, is, is as absolute as you get. Uh, but he is building a the, the, the leadership class of the nation under Napoleon comes through this meritocratic idea of rising up and not rising through business, but rising through war and achievement in, in, in service to the nation in terms of this, these deadly conflicts. Um, I think that that, like, for instance, that's an example of, of liberalism at, at its best, meaning that uh, we're not going to have the old privileged families that are just fossilized uh, privileges, that they, they enjoy certain incredible privilege just by virtue of having the family name and, and of ownership of it. And the same thing, you know, I think liberalism originally was also a reaction to things that are completely outdated with the church, uh, you know, and the power of the church and the churches at that time. And now Napoleon, it was interesting because he restored the place of the church to some extent. Well, Napoleon he, was sort of synthesized the liberalism of the revolution with the tradition of, of the monarchy. Yes, yes, which I think was really uh, good. Uh, you know, Napoleon, um, I'm trying to find, uh, there's, a, there's a thing here, if I can find it, I'll read it about this, but... Uh, Napoleon, like with the church, what Napoleon did was he he didn't go like the the, the French Revolution. The, the the church was one of the one of the biggest landowners in uh, in France and and had all kinds of the the princes of the church, the prelates of the church had all kinds of privileges and and almost to the point where they were like parasites on the people. Like the the the, the people consider this this to be. Uh, like a burden on us that that there's just through sheer tradition this massive organization this institution the church controls all this land and property and territory and has tax money and all this and and its leaders have authority the french revolution comes along and and had like atheist aspects to it i mean where it's just like to completely bring the church down and uh hold up reason we're going to worship reason now in place of of the of the church napoleon comes along and he's like no, the people need religion. It's good for the people to have the Christian faith. But we're not going back to the old system of privileges for the church, you know? So so Napoleon is a very interesting figure and and, and really proto-fascist. I mean, I have, to, I, I have to emphasize that again. Very proto-fascist in that he's sort of like national, the same way national socialism was taking what's best out of socialism, which was the big movement in the early late 19th and early 20th century. He takes what's best about socialism and blends it with nationalism. Napoleon took what was best about the liberalization of the, the opening up of things that took place under the French revolution. But then he curbs the excesses of it and combines it with this strong central authority and this. And yeah, well, this let's, well, let's combine. Let's contrast that though with what happened in Germany and Austria after Napoleon's fall. Well, in France too, for that matter, where they saw what Nap- what had happened with Napoleon, and they thought, well, if we do, if we have a combination like that where there's any liberalism at all, 
then we're going to have another Napoleon on our hands. Right. So Prussia uh, under Frederick William III and then his uh, son, the fourth, and Austria, this was under Francis I. The, uh, well, Francis I disbanded the Holy Roman Empire in 1806. And I, I guess he was, was he still emperor after in 1815? Uh, or, Francis was, yeah, still emperor in 1815, okay. yes. So they, those kings and then the, the resurrected Bourbon monarchy in France right. just went, tried to recreate the era of before 1789 yeah the congress of vienna was very much a uh that's that's when they all came together and uh again beethoven was there he he performed for the, all these the crowned heads of europe um in vienna and, and the congress of vienna was sort of there uh like the like the uh it was like versailles it was like versailles exactly and they even had they even had the sultan and the pope there yeah where they where they're for kind some, of like all right we're gonna, flavor. and we're gonna reorder europe but unlike Versailles, which actually like made major changes, you know, like like the the, the settlement after World War One broke up em massive empires and just reordered the whole world. Um, the Congress of Vienna was much more conservative. It's like, okay, you know, guess what? The revolution lost, France lost. We're safe. You know, all the royal houses of Europe were fine. We're safe. We can go back to ultra like aristocratic privilege and uh you know everything will be back and and this was actually a big reason why the waterloo campaign happened i mean again i i kind of joke about like napoleon is so irrepressible that he comes back again and a hundred thousand people dead later they have to exile him again but the why did those why would those people fight for napoleon like after after millions of people have fought and and been wounded or died in all these wars for basically 20 years i mean europe was at war for like 20 years on, with napoleon um why in 1815 when he comes back why wouldn't they just be like fuck you i'm not dying for you you know like because he was, enough people? he was awesome i mean just basic well that's part of it but another big part of it was just that the the bourbons the, the french like the people who came back in to run France after Napoleon was kicked out the first time were just like aristocrats who had spent the whole last 15 years hiding in England or somewhere. I mean, they're they were disgusting just like, fat losers. They were actually, you know what they were? They were the same equivalent of the German expats that returned to Germany like Adenauer and formed mm -hmm. the post-war German government. In many cases, they're just traitors. They're like traitors to their own country and their own people. And they came back and 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 they're just like, Oh, yes, I want all my old family lands back. I mean, like 20 years had gone by and it's like, you know, the French people have had a taste of what it's like to not just be like an ignorant peasant hoeing spuds, you know, until an aristocrat decides to call you up and send you into battle with a pitchfork, you know, into cannon fire so that he can mix, uh, you know, have an extra like uh, uh, orchard, you know, to collect taxes on. I mean, they, they were not, you know, that's maybe a little unfair to the aristocracy, but it's like they're not going back to this. And, and it was very like Marshall Ney is the great example. Marshall Ney was treated with respect at first, the second time, you know, after Waterloo, they, they, they shot him, they killed him with a firing squad. But, but the first time Marshall Ney, who <clears throat> Napoleon called the bravest of the brave, he's a man I admire tremendously. He was just not always a great commander in terms of his strategic choices, but always a great leader of men like, uh, in Master and Commander, they say that about Lord Nelson. It's like, not always a great tactician, but a great leader. Uh, Marshal Ney, the bravest of the brave, who, like, 
insane levels of courage uh, and, and heroism. And when Napoleon was beaten in 1814, he's one of the guys that convinced Napoleon to abdicate. Well, he was given like an honorary position in the new French, you know, administration. But his wife was like treated like shit by the other wives of the of the aristocrats that came back. And and from Ney's perspective, it's like, who the fuck are you? I mean, I've been he even said this when he was executed. He's like, I fought a hundred battles for France and not one against her. It's like I have personally led like the greatest military achievements, not only of the French, but of like any European army in all of history. And now I'm here and these French aristocrats are coming back that were not fighting any of these battles and they're treating me, they're treating my wife with indignity. They're like treating us like shit. A lot of the veterans, I mean, this is a big part of why they rose up also is because all the veterans, I mean, you have this massive, like, demobilized veterans. I mean, that's always a problem, whether it's the KKK after the Civil War or the Fascisti, the Squadristi of uh, Italy or the Brown Shirts or the Fry Corps. It's always a problem when you have, like, a bunch of veterans of a war that are feeling, like, humiliated now, like, God damn it, what did we fight for? Uh, they were treated like shit. You know, in 1814, they were sick of war. They were tired of war. But by 1815, they're like, these reactionaries are coming back in, swaggering around, expecting us to just give over everything that we had, or including our dignity. And uh, when Napoleon came back, it's like, yeah, viva l'emperor. You know, let's try this again. Let's, you know, if you f first you don't succeed, try, try again. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, um, I think that, the, the what we can draw from I don't know Greg the the lessons from of liberalism yeah you know, one of the big things I will say is this that's it's not a direct lesson we can draw but I think that the government of the United States is incredibly if not aristocratic that's the wrong word but it is an oligarchy of uh, wealthy families and people who increasingly to an extent not in the 80s or the 90s but today in 2022 i feel that the people running this country are increasingly just the people who have money keep the money and the people that don't have money just can't even break into it unless they are geniuses who have are unencumbered by any moral qualms whatsoever and get really lucky like this country is losing its social mobility in the extreme. And when I think about our movement, for example, I see a lot of the best young men I've ever met in my life. I'm not kidding. Like I see like when we go, when we have an NJP meeting, I'm always impressed by the quality of the people. And in many cases, there are people who are frustrated with their status in life, their station in life. White men in, and this isn't just the NJP. This is just white men across. Well, shouldn't the board they just get a job States. that they're over that they're underqualified for? Right, right, exactly. Give me a fucking Tucker break. Carlson. Nobody uh, can get a job, let alone one that they're underqualified for. Right, and, and so, real. so, so I feel like, I feel like where there's a similar thing there is that the political struggle that we are engaged in, that we must engage in, it is very much the the extreme odds that we're facing. It is sort of like the French during the revolutionary period and the period right after that, where by necessity, they had to be meritocratic. They had to improvise. They had to have the best guys come to the top 
because of the difficulty of the struggle. Well, and the same thing with Prussia and it's and after 1806. Yeah. Yeah. They yes. were for, they were forced to reorganize. Yes. Despite what the aristocracy wanted. Yes. And uh, and if I compare like, you know, if you I know that the, the right makes a big deal out of Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden's laptops, Hunter Biden's coke whores, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. Yeah. But if you actually like just like look at Hunter Biden and, and look at the videos of him and, and study his life, he's a good example of the kind of extreme privilege, like insufferable morons that are just living off the <laughs> like the wealth of the state and the connections of their disgusting corrupt parents and grandparents uh you look at a guy like a jew like jamie raskin who's prosecuting the january 6th people and who's and his father and his father's father and and they go back to the roosevelt administration and before um so so yeah i mean that was the original one of the original uh ideas of liberalism was breaking down this sort of status privilege thing but i think i think that's just it it's don't don't get hung up on the word liberalism the yeah. the trend here is the exact same or it's analogous at least yes it's yes you have a ossified oligarchy a plutocracy a, a state run by uh fat buffoons who are rich and don't deserve to run anything and who don't care about the people you have it then in, in Germany in, in or in Prussia in 1806 and in America now. And I'll, I'll give you another uh, kind of bizarre. Uh, so the, the reforms necessary are in many cases similar. Yeah. Now we're going to be using different words. We don't need to get rid of serfdom because serfdom doesn't exist in that same way. But it does kind of exist. Yeah. It, or it's starting to exist. Yes. Yes. So so it's not perfectly, uh, you know, when we when we look at stuff in the 1920s. It's like the same shit today, like exactly, like one for one, the same Antifa, the same trannies, the same Jews, the same bankers, the same communists, the same capitalists, the same reactionaries, the same Nazis. But when you go back this far to this period, you have to get a little more, you have to have, use a little more imagination to see where the parallels are. I'll give you another interesting parallel that I just thought of. Liberalism, you know how I said I would be a liberal back then? Well, liberalism back then was critical of, for instance... Um, the superstitious sort of uh, uh, superstition of the church, you know, which is like they viewed the enlightened men of the enlightenment viewed too much uh, church myth as being something like a holdover from medieval ignorance. And now we are living in a time of reason and scientific inquiry. And then we all know how that in our modern day is, is there's like a sick parody of it. I love science. And, you know, like I, uh, the 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 uh, fedora wearing uh, bug man who, who who's like trust the science, but even though like really, so I don't trust your science if there's no epistemology to back it up, right, idiot. But what you have to look at is the religion of today. Ironically, we would call it liberalism, but the 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 religion of today is the egalitarian uh, diversity is our strength. You know, feminist holocaustianity that there's a there's a body of beliefs today that the ruling class has and that everyone is supposed to believe in things like saint martin luther king jr who was just you know a nigger cunthound basically pardon my language but i mean he was who 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 was like inflated by the media into this into this uh figure of like this this saintly man which he wasn't at all uh 
there's a series of bizarre, like fake myths that this whole system is built on. And what I see in our movement, and this isn't just like NJP people, but this is the whole, like, really like the old alt-right and everyone associated with it, is free inquiry. Free inquiry. The ability to critically ask questions, not the answers, you know, not the answers, the, the conclusions that we come to, National Socialism or Hitler or whatever. No, just asking the questions like, did six million really die in the gas chambers? Or are there are men and women completely equal? Like, can a man chop his dick off and now he's a woman? Like, like you see what I mean? Like that that like the tranny thing. That is our version today of the goofy religious dogmas, medieval religious dogmas and superstitions of 200 years ago or 300 years ago or 500 years ago. Today, it's these insane liberal ideas. And we are like the liberals of that time in that we are men who want to ask questions and, and freely inquire into these things. And we're, you know, and that's something, again, that I absolutely, you know, I'm a man of the romantic era. I love the romantic era above all. But the Romantic Era was not in opposition to the Enlightenment. The Romantic Era was building on to the Enlightenment, in my opinion. And to me, one of the great things of the Enlightenment that we are losing today is the idea of free, open inquiry, like, for instance, on race, racial science. I mean, that's completely a, an Enlightenment idea is to like let's examine it. are there actual or talking about Jews in a political context. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's right there. There's another one. The liberals of that time would have been people who were objectively looking at what's wrong with society and what's wrong with the state and how can we fix this? Because liberals had a very like an idea of yeah, it's progress it's, and it's like, don't like, it's don't get hung up on the words. That's the I think people yes. people do this in English where they they okay liberals back then meant these people. Oh, I'm against that, therefore I'm against them. But right. liberal now and liberal then have almost ex exactly opposite meanings. Almost they do. Yeah, yeah. Because now liberal means person who believes in the system's religion. They don't call it a religion, but trannies, yes. faggots, Jews, all the of it. civic religion. That is the, the civic, civic religion of the state, of the of the neoliberal order, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. So it, it prevents people from making accurate analogies. It, right. It's this problem with language well and people i i hate the fact that you know i said a few kind words about the french revolution there i never liked and and again hitler did too uh there's a book uh, called hitler's national socialism by rainer zeidelman where he uh he he talks about hitler's attitude towards the french revolution and he says it was ambiguous you know he would praise it in some ways and criticize it in others right. which i think is appropriate but uh, one of the things that I never liked about the early alt-right period was this thing to say we're neo-reactionaries and to call ourselves reactionaries. And I think that's the problem also with this idea of what you just said, like not understanding that a liberal today and a liberal in the 1810s would have been a completely different thing. Um, we don't need reactionaries today. We don't need people, and, and there's a tendency to want to do that on the right to sort of just, and, and this has kind of gone away, but it was very prevalent in like 2015, 2016. And, you know, uh, you had people like, uh, who's the guy with the monocle? Um, the Italian. Um, oh, Evola. Julius Evola, yes. You have people that want to go back to this like old aristocratic ethos. But yeah, it's like you, if the, the 
fundamental thing of the aristocratic ethos is willingness to take risk and and uh, endure the possibility of death. Right. Which is like why um, Marshall Ney and his Marshall Ney was was right to look at these aristocrats and say, "Who the hell are you? Yes. What have you done? Yes. Like why you're an aristocrat? Okay, your ancestor fought with uh, I don't Pepin the Short." Right, oh, that's right. cool. What have you done in the last thousand years? Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, the the today, I, I think that we uh, we're we're the the ones that are critical of the state and are and are asking the questions, and the people that have the the courage to ask the questions. You know, I mean, that's again, like in that sense, we are the liberals of today and these people are not. But but again, the, the danger is if you don't understand those terms and you think liberalism bad, well, who would I be? I'm, I'm of the right. Well, even if you go back to the French Revolution, the right wing were the, the, the supporters of the aristocracy. Now, I have a whole theory, it's my own, that the reason why it's correct to categorize fascism and national socialism as to the right rather than the left of the political spectrum, is that they were aristocratic, but not the aristocracy of privilege, like what Thomas Jefferson wrote about, not the aristocracy of wealth and privilege, more the aristocracy of like nature's aristocracy of the best. And even Thomas Jefferson, who was very much a man of the Enlightenment, wrote that like, that's what democracy is for. The whole idea of democracy is not because people voting is good for society in its own right. Like it's just good on its own. The idea is that if we have a more fluid social structure uh, where there's more uh, social mobility, and if we have a strong sense of civic virtue, then the most talented and people with the best virtue in the old sense will rise to the top. And so we'll, we'll get better leaders with a democracy than we will with an aristocracy. Didn't he say a mixed regime? Wasn't that, you, you showed me a, a, a letter of his where he was talking i'm pretty sure he was referring to aristotle's politics if i had to guess maybe yeah was, but was, but i mean but i mean like the idea the basic idea of of a republic uh that that, that you can have uh you through a, a process of selecting your leaders rather than just the leader is the leader because he was born the leader you know um the danger with that is that eventually you get people who are very unqualified to be right. the leaders um so if you have a system where the leaders are chosen the theory is you're eventually going to get you're going to get better leaders through that process. Now, obviously, something went horribly wrong here because we have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris sitting on the top of our political system. But uh, well, and even even insofar as they well, let's assume they're puppets. But like the people that actually are do do wield political power. I don't know George Soros, uh, Jeff Bezos, whoever. Like you name a ten, a hundred people, they're also of extraordinarily low quality. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, they're they're actually like the worst. They're, they're actually there is. yeah. They're like they're they're like they're. It's like putting like pimps and murderers in charge of your state. I mean, they are they are they are financiers, Jewish financiers, who are, who are like the lowest of the low. I mean, they're literally like parasites on society, and that all their wealth is derived from sucking the productive wealth of of actual productive capital and labor, and and diverting it into this completely unproductive, like anti-productive usury uh, system. But but yeah, the, the, the point to, to bring it back is a big mistake is to look at this time period and be like, oh, well, uh, these are the liberals back then. So I would be on the right. I would be, you know, we need neo reaction. We need to go back to 
an old aristocracy. We need to go back. You know, whenever I find some LARPer who says they're a monarchist, I haven't encountered that in a while. But in 2017, I knew guys still that were like, well, I believe in monarchy, you know, a Christian monarchy or something like that. It's like, you have it's you. Like, well, how do you, it's like, well, how do you find those aristocrats? Well, I mean, you know, they have to found the state and build it up and have centuries yeah. of tradition. You're just going to bring that out of nowhere. Yes, exactly. And, and all you got to do is study Hitler's attitude towards uh the the kaiser i mean the same family that friedrich wilhelm um the king here that we're talking about his same family was still running germany in 1914 and uh what's interesting is that some of his descendants joined the sa and were uh you know the the younger the youngest uh, brother of the kaiser became a big national socialist and they just got with the times man they were like yeah, there's a continuity here, and Hitler is the... And again, that's very much like there were French noblemen who backed Napoleon. There were... Calencourt, I told you about his master of horse. Mm-hmm. He he came from one, one of the oldest aristocratic families in France. I mean, he had like a military line going back to the time of like the Crusades and before. Probably like to Charlemagne, like Roland's like right-hand guy <laughs> was probably Cal, one of Calencourt's ancestors. And when the French Re- Revolution happened, Calencourt's father sided with the revolutionaries he was like no this you know france needs change this is good and under robespierre and the the terror they were so out of control that they almost executed this guy like they almost guillotined him anyway because they were guillotining each other you know i mean the, the revolution went totally haywire and 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 radix self-radicalized like france self-radicalized to where they're all cutting each other's heads off but when napoleon got in he was wise enough to be like okay I really appreciate, again, this is the old Machiavellian thing. I really appreciate that you, even though you are from an old aristocratic family, you're on board with the new state. And in fact, Calencourt was not only Napoleon's big diplomat with with Russia and his master of horse who went back with him, but Calencourt's brother led the biggest final charge at Borodino, which was the bloodiest single day's fighting in the Napoleonic Wars and was killed, leading the charge that broke the Russian redoubt. Uh, So, again, with Napoleon, like Hitler, the best of the old synthesized with the new. You know, it's not like, oh, this is new, so it's good. That's old, so it's bad. That's That's like liberalism at its most extreme. Conservatism is at its most extreme, or reactionary is what's old is good, what's new is bad. We must stick with what's old. The third way, you could say, and and again, that's what fascism is, and in that sense, Napoleon was a proto-fascist. It's, let's borrow, let's find the best elements of what was old, let's get rid of all that's not good ruthlessly, let's get rid of it, and let's bring in the best of what's new. Yeah, and that's what we should try to do. Yes. Yes.